This temple crew has a plan And they begin by digging into those Two scoops In every Kellogg's pack Two scoops I'll Keep them coming back For two, two scoops of plump juicy raisins In Kellogg's Raisin Bran Hooked up and in command They're working now But they're thinking how they lost Two scoops And Golden Blake's a brand Two scoops They're turning back again For two scoops of plump juicy raisins In Kellogg's Raisin Bran Welcome to episode two of the Two Scoops podcast, already your second favorite podcast, and the podcast always sure to give you 2,222% effort, if not 22 one hundredths of a percentage point of effort beyond that. My name is Jordan Breen, and in the sidecar of our vintage esoteric media automobile, in a leather riding cap, road goggles, and a scarf, it's the homie David Bixen span. Bix, we made it to episode two. We're out here. We are. We are. It's real now. Anyone, anyone can do a pilot, but uh, we got picked up by ourselves. Ourselves. Who would we be doing a pilot for? No, I'm just saying. I'm just saying. There's, there's lots of people. It's like think of it like uh, the Mia Wallace thing in Pulp Fiction. The, the idea of like the, the failed entertainer who always grips to. Well, I was in a pilot once. Anyone can make a pilot, but now we're co-pilots on. The, the, the illest mothership of weird, dusty media that you can dig up on YouTube, Daily Motion, or some clandestine Russian video streaming site. You mean our YouTube or whatever it is? I wasn't, I wasn't going to say, but when I imagine, when I, when I say a clandestine Russian streaming site, in my head, I'm imagining our YouTube.ru or whatever. Redacted tube.redacted. <laughs> so. Speaking of a uh, rotting sidecar and uh, having some fancy gear, Bex, we're gonna have a we're gonna have a policing kind of day. We're gonna we're gonna put on some blues. I guess not blues. I'm more of a more of a detective kind of thing. Put on some uh, two piece suit and uh, pound the pavement. Good old fashioned detective work today, Bix. Yes, and that will extend to our first ever Patreon exclusive bonus show. So much excitement to be had. If you're the kind of person that likes police procedurals and the like, this is probably the sort of episode that's going to make you horny and that sort of thing. So, you know, if you got a particular – if you're the kind of person that has uh, not even hot takes, even if you've got a lukewarm take about your favorite spinoff of Law & Order or who your favorite characters are and all that kind of stuff, this is definitely the kind of scooping for you. Bix got to dive into things, but – a weird a, a last minute addendum last minute agenda entry to our second episode here right off the top as i mentioned in oh as we actually talked about i think a few times during the first two scoops pod which if somehow you've stumbled upon this and you have not listened yet go back listen to the first episode listen to the mission statement listen to our tones on wesley two scoops barry your favorite car jumping eliminator dominating convicted armed robber and james heydrich i don't want to say necessarily your favorite illiterate traumatized abused self-taught martial artist telekinetic psychic fraud child molester only because i don't know that there's another one you got you got you you, you you're aware of any other heydrichs in this world bix isn't isn't he running for president don't don't say things like that because one of the things that we figured out about James Hydrick last week is that it's not that he's unfazed or immune to his prison status. 
but he's always found a way to stay involved an active party james hydrick is not a man who throughout his various incarcerations over the years has attempted to be a model prisoner or is even a low-key prisoner as we talked about he ended up having a department of justice inquiry launched into california's um um solitary confinement practices and stuff like that is just a dude that's handing out crazy occultist informational leaflets to other prisoners he's blown the who's gal three times in his life he never stops as we discussed last week this dude is on parole technically he is he is out for his child molesting crimes of 1989 but he's a violent sex offender so he ends up being remanded to the state anyway and has to stay in atascadero state hospital or whatever the thing's called and yet he's still out here writing things, having a presence, ending up in our initial episode. So even though we're amidst this election cycle, Bix, do not tempt fate and say that James Hydrick is running for president because heaven forbid he becomes the third party candidate that Bill Crystal has been looking for or the replacement candidate that Bill Crystal has been looking for, I should say. Now, speaking of uh, criminals in California, before we started recording, I made a bad joke referencing, some- referencing something that you had actually never seen. You still laughed, though. But- yeah, so 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 as we're as as I was saying before, you horrified me with the thought of James Hydrick somehow launching a uh, presidential campaign from prison. Um, we just talked about last week. One of the whole points of the show, one of the reasons that we wanted to do it, is we have these conversations about weird old media, and a lot of times, I think it's fair to say people listening to this or people who are familiar with our workout outside of Two Scoops. We we kind of have a, a depth and breadth with old, strange media. We're clearly strange children that stayed up past our bedtimes and watched bizarre television that no one gave a shit about when it aired in the 70s, let alone today. And we're molded and sculpted by this. Yet every so often, you'll reference something or I'll reference something, and the other one of us will be like, wait, what? what wait, what's this thing? And we need to get these things on the show. It's not the, – the point of this show is to be able to – I don't want to say monetize, but monetize and facilitate these conversations for other people's enjoyment, the kind of things we'd be doing anyway. That's I won't call it I won't call it a two scoops promise, but ultimately our ethos, philosophy, one of the things we're trying to deliver is is, you know, showing people the sort of weird conversations and moments of discovery we've had when diving through the archives with one another. So it's only fitting that any time one of us brings up something that the other hasn't seen, especially if it's right before we start recording, we're going to have to watch this live. So Bix, cue it up for me, cue it up for the listeners. What are you about to subject me to on our second episode of Two Scoops right here? Okay, now this is something that does have something of a following from the past, but I haven't seen it come up as much lately as you'd expect. Okay. So this is from ABC's coverage of the OJ Bronco chase. It's from mm-hmm. after he's gotten back to his house. Mm-hmm. And uh, by the way, quickly, just because it is, I don't know if it's our or my generation's news JFK moment. I guess that's nine 11 or something like that. But do you remember where you were, what you were doing on what's the date? June 26, 1994. When it popped. Is that right? Uh, June 12th. June 12th, my bad. Or no, was it June 12th? I mean, what was the name of the ESPN? Well, was, was dude, that's 12th, exactly right? what I was trying to think of, too. All right. June was it 12th oh, or 17th. All right. We're about we're about to find out. Our calendar check, June 17th. Both of us are 
Well, I got it right. I got it right the second time. How many game shows do you get that many tries, B? That's a good question. We need to think about that one. That's <laughs> that might a be a future show. Beverly. Yeah. Uh, so June 17th, 1994, do you remember what you were doing when OJ got out onto the freeway? I was watching the NBC, MB, excuse me, NBA Finals on NBC, and they interrupted the game and had it in a box, as has become lore now. Like it was documented in documented documented. What did I just say? It was documented <laughs> document- in, in, in Doc- the- presented in documentary. Yes, in the uh, People versus OJ Simpson series, and I think maybe also in the uh, ESPN OJ documentary. But what you're featuring, about to see was featuring, not- by the way, dovetailing with our future content, featuring Law and Order Special Victims Unit, future ADA Courtney B. Vance, uh, criminal intent. Oh my bad. Yes, criminal criminal intent. My ill. But yes, Courtney B. Vance. Is there any other? Is there any notables in that who made Law and Order appearances? Uh, I'm sure. Uh, why am I forgetting her name? Also, what's her face that plays Marsha Clark? I'm sure she's been in some. She's been in some on some Law and Order episodes. Nonetheless, as as will become a a long running theme of this show, I'm sure we digress, or at least I do. We attempt to digress. So, how much should I give away? So I mean, so so that's your moment. You're just you're you're chilling. You're watching the NBA boom. Yeah, and this is now this is on ABC though, and I'm trying to figure out if I should tell you if I should give you the background first, or if I should give you the background after you hear this. Let me quickly say that just so people in their heads can imagine as they watch this what we would have been like in the moment watching. You're watching some playoffs. Um, I was. This is on a different was- network though. Okay, yeah, sure, but but what I'm saying is this was a Friday night, right? Because I rented video games and was having a slumber party. That sounds right. I believe it was a Friday night. Um, also, do you remember the Pizza Hut two-foot pizza that was like all in squares? Bigfoot. The Bigfoot, baby. You better believe me and the homie Justin Mason, who, shout-outs, I believe he uh, just got out of prison again and is expecting another child. Shout-outs to my ne'er-do-well childhood friends. Uh we got we got the two foot Bigfoot Hawaiian baby. I think it was all those square feet, all those square slices rented rented a little Cybernator, maybe the most underrated Konami game. If you've never played, if you're a 16 bit fan, someone who likes uh, uh, mech games, you like getting in a robot blowing shit up. Cybernator, mad underrated. Uh, yeah, I'm playing video games. Pizza comes, need those square slices. We hit the kitchen, and my parents are just having a having a moment in the living room. We peek in. And there it is. And my mom was just like, oh, O.J. Simpson's running away from the police. And it's like it's, it's one of the first news moments I can remember not like participating in like my I don't know, recently turned seven year old self would have had any input. But it's the first time I can remember like a, like a famous person doing a crazy thing. And I knew who that person was. I knew O.J. I'd seen Monarchy commercials. I'd seen this man run with a football with an afro in the 70s. I'm there. So we're on our respective couches. We're rocking. Anything else you want to say without spoiling too much before we hit play here, Bix? I think it's better you just hear it than if you've never heard this and never have never read about this. All right, here we go. Our first also in, in what hopefully will become a, a fun theme of this show, our, fir- our first live look in, our first live play-by-play of a historical event. And one of those is coming on Patreon, sort of. Well, more on that in a bit. Get so, your wallets out. Get your wallets out already. Start, start, start separating the, the crispy bills with your thumb. 
Kripka's primed up. All right, Bix, do you do you hit play on this thing? Uh, either of us can, but I will. Do it to it. Let's go through the historical wormhole. It just seems perfectly clear that Cowling wants everybody to be calm. <laughs> and that's Peter Jennings talking, of course. With the driver's side door of the Bronco open here. Who's out of the door? Is that OJ? Uh, that's either AC or one of the cops. I'm going to ask everybody to be quiet for a moment. We have on the phone with us as well Robert Higgins, who lives <laughs> in the neighborhood and is on the ground and can see inside the van. Mr. Higgins. Uh, yes, uh, how are you? Uh, just about as tense as you are, sir. Oh, my lord, this is quite the tensest. What can you see? Oh, what I'm looking at right now is I'm looking at the van and I see OJ kind of slouching down, looking very, very upset. Now, look at here. He looks very upset. I don't know what he's going to be doing. Can you, can you, can you see him doing anything specific? Is he merely sitting there? He is just uh, sitting around, you know, just uh, looking like he'd be very nervous. Can you hear anything, Mr. Higgins? It's just too much commotion. I'd be in the back of a news van, so I can't really hear that good, but I can see it all. all right, I got to pause this for just one second. What, what is this accent, Bix? What this this cadence attempted dialect whatever is going on here with your boy Robert Higgins fresh on the scene June seventeenth nineteen ninety four what what would you even compare this voice accent cadence to and what could possibly be the inspiration for this uh, I would say Amos Andy and Kingfish. <laughs> Oh, man. I'm, all right, so we're 75 seconds in, and I'm already absolutely enamored. We continue. And I see OJ. I see OJ, man, and he looks scared. There's cops all Mr. Higgins. And Baba Booey to y'all. <laughs> the driveway of OJ Simpson's home in Brentwood. Clearly an effort being made to have him come out of the vehicle in the doorway of the house. Pausing again quickly, as you mentioned off the top, and suitably so, given what we're listening to, I know it's Peter Jennings, so you have more of a classic throwback old newsman feel. But how surreal is it to watch a news incident like this? Never mind the fact that other than the special report little uh, logo they've flashed on the bottom with the watermark – there's no chirons all over the screen. And more than that, the people who are voicing – think about what it's like now when you see footage from KTLA and they're like, well, someone robbed a 7-Eleven and they're in a high-speed chase with the cops. And like eventually the dude crashes a stolen SUV off the freeway, tries to jump out on some GTA 5 shit, and ends up getting shot live on television. And the whole time they're just giving this strange, breathless. Well, we don't know where he's going. He's he's hopping a he's hopping a divider. He's hopping a barricade. Peter Jennings is remarkably chill about all of this, given what could be transpiring and what in actuality is transpiring. I feel like it's like do you feel like it's bizarre and sober to listen to this kind of voiceovering, given what this story is? You mean that it's like well, uh, any minute now, O.J. Simpson may either shoot himself or be. I feel like police. think about this and maybe not not to put extra post-production work on you, Bix. If you took Peter Jennings track off of this and just played 
generic kind of string and brass fanfare underneath this, it would sound like a generic 1920s newsreel. Do you know what I mean? Famous Negro footballer. Oh, my God. (laughs) It's going to get worse for you, man. You're going to notice yourself doing worse and worse things and saying more and more awful things out loud because of doing this podcast with me. If you say so. We continue. Al Cowling. Peter, by the way, just for the record, this is Al Michaels. That was a totally farcical call. <laughs> Lest anybody think that that was somebody who was truly across the street. That was not. Uh, he, he said something in code at the end that's indicative of uh, the mention. In of code! The name of uh, a certain radio talk show host. Okay, thanks, Al. So he was not there. All right, we have them on every coast. Thank you very much. <laughs> first time nor the last time. We'll... Commentary on Culture and Life by Peter Jennings. I actually don't know why this video is six minutes, so many six minutes long. Like, does this have the? Yeah, Barbara think, Walters is showing just, up. Okay, I think it's just the the coverage in context. Okay, that's that's the end of Robert Higgins. Okay, this hang on, was, real, real quick though. Does does Babs Walters say anything cool here? I don't What's, think so. No, I think I, that's I, the end of of ICOJ. Oh, so okay, no no hot take from Barbara Walters on Howard Stern and his minions corrupting one of the largest news stories ever. So this was a guy named Maury from Brooklyn. Um, I believe a was he is he a Hasidic Jew or just like ultra or like an orthodox orthodox Jew, I think. And loved the Knicks. So pissed off that his Knicks are being relegated to a box. If if not being shown <laughs> So he and I for, he did only like two prank calls in his life. I forget what the other one was. But this one, he calls up, uh, I guess, I forget if it was NBC or the NBC station New York, and it didn't work. Or No, no, the number was busy. Excuse me. I think that's what it was. The phone number was busy. So then he just call finds the next one, the next uh, network he can, which is ABC, and just screams something like, I've got some, I got OG's neighbor on the phone. If you don't put me on the air in the next 30 seconds, uh, I'm going to the Chicago affiliate. He's pretending to be a producer. I feel, also, by the way, I feel like that threat is somehow even hotter today. You know what I mean? Like even back then, the journalistic practice, you got phones and no one wants to lose the hot story. But if an, a similar analog happened today in 2016, the rush of panic in an, a journalistic editorial situation where you know that if somehow this is true, this dude is a 10 second DM from some random dickhead wonk on Twitter and giving him the story that that impetus, I think plays even harder today. Yes. Like hypothetically, if Ronda Rousey's coach were an interesting personality and someone had a parody account of him on Twitter (laughs) and he were to correspond with someone from TMZ, something like that. But anyway, yes, that was uh... quickly, by the way, if you're keeping score at home, that is the first reference to Sir Edmund Terraverdian on your very own Two Scoops podcast. Bix, continue. We'll see what happens with him. I bet he can transcend MMA if he really puts some muscle behind it. Oh, my. Bix, 
I don't want to get too ahead of ourselves, but let's say we got some legs to this thing. Let's say people actually somehow enjoy these conversations, like what we're doing, like going through weird old news, television, film, self-produced media archives, vibe hard. What if in five years we're talking about Edmund Tarverdi in a non-MMA context and he ends up on two scoops? I can only imagine. Oh, no. 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 I mean, that's all. Also, I feel I feel like no, no as well. But as you alluded to, I feel like it's it's at least a possibility. Well, we'll see what happens at his next bankruptcy hearing. Maybe one of me, one of our friends like John Nash will go and he'll just report back or maybe his friend Robert Higgins will about, you know, he, uh, he looks mighty tenses. So. This is one of the biggest that news was stories. I apologize. No, no, no. I, I disagree entirely. You, you have nothing to apologize for. This is, this is a no apology zone, Bix. Uh, apologies aside, big news story like this. Hall of Fame football player, massive media market, double murder. So many angles to this. It's no wonder that the OJ trial excited people and, and sort of kicked off. I, I, would you think it's fair to say that maybe more so than any individual story and stuff like that, that this is kind of the – this is what accelerates and truly catalyzes the 24-hour news cycle? Oh, of when course you, it does. Of course when it does. you suddenly realize there's a there's a story juicy enough that it, even if it's the only thing happening – Oh, juice. Juicy enough. Oh, I didn't even – I didn't even. Thank you though. I'm, I'm more clever than I realized. I appreciate you spotting me like that. That's why we're here together. But I, I, dude, I, I, when I was in elementary school, I, uh, I went to my, my grandmother, my maternal grandmother lived up the block and it's like, I would go there at lunch and she would just be, my grandmother was super into like soap operas and just classic housebound, uh, homemaker type shit. She rocked like, yeah, no, no home shopping. But like the full like – she would do like Young and the Restless Bull and the Beautiful. Another World on NBC was her jam. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden when the OJ trial started, like I used to – when I was like three, four, five, six, I would like watch soap operas and shit with my grandmother. At some point talking about this, I'm probably going to make you watch some episodes of Another World. No. No, 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 no. It's on, baby. I haven't seen this stuff in 25 years. But this is the moment where that changes. I mean, it's not like my grandmother stopped watching soap operas, but when the OJ trial started, it was all OJ all the time. She would wake up. Make breakfast, turn on CNN, watch all the OJ coverage all day, and then when my mom got off work at 6 p.m. and would co- go over to her house, they would turn CNN back on together, sit in the kitchen, and just watch OJ coverage together. My maternal grandmother and my mother, for the duration of the OJ trial, just turned into 24-hour cable zombies and were so enamored. And... Like this is the moment that teaches you you can sustain an entire network, an entire genre of coverage with one story if it's this juicy, this salacious. But Bix, this day and age, and frankly, since about ooh, 1989 or so, you get a story, a legitimate real-world crime and trial that – grabs and captivates the public's attention with a, an immediate stranglehold. I think you know what happens next. I, I, think, I think you know that it ends up in the headlines and then it gets ripped from there. And when we're getting ripped from the headlines, you know where we're going, David Bixen Span? I was literally about to fucking say Chung Chung out loud. 
You're my boy, Bex. On the 13th of June, 1994, no one knows what happened on that night for sure. Nicole Dawn sparking a plaintiff's way. In one room, ice creams melting, candles burning. Late on the scene was Detective Furman to investigate the murders of Brown and Goldman. Not before long, it was on the news. Jay Simpson stood accused of Now, before we talk about how Ben Stone and Paul Robinette absolutely would have gotten OJ convicted, we need to do some house cleaning. And uh, I guess the first item on the agenda is the new one that was not around last week, and that is our Patreon account. Got, got a little bit of new action for y'all. Also, as we were about to get into some law and order, I think we've seen over the years that in terms of certain professions, they can, they, they're normally reluctant. They normally don't want to disobey the employers. But as we get into the house cleaning segment, there's a lot, a lot of Ben Stone, especially a lot of Jack McCoy convictions where Consuela really came through. Who? I shouldn't have said that. That's awful. And also... When I think of defining early law and order maids, housekeepers, and the like uh, that contributed, what? Oh my God, she's in. Oh, I feel so stupid because the minute I said her name, you'll recognize it. She's like, she's like a, a senior citizen character actor, and she's been in a, she's been in like all the Law and Order spinoffs, and she's also uh, she also marries Treat Williams in an episode of Tales from the Crypt where Treat Williams throws Tom Hanks head first through a television set and kills him. Also featuring Sugar Ray Leonard as a gravedigger. Um, let me look up what this chick's name is. She is like the first one I can think of who comes through huge as a housekeeper with like the defining knowledge that blows the case wide open. Frances Sternhagen. She she was a house. What episode is she a housekeeper in? First season, the episode. Um, I think it's, maybe it's called My Brother's Keeper or whatever. It's the one like the 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 publishing dude is is killed. Him and his wife are shot. In, in, in their home and the focus instantly shifts to their two sons because their father was an insane abusive gun-toting oh, the Menendez brothers episode yeah, yeah going this, back this to the, says the serpent's tooth is what she is serpent's tooth that is a businessman and his wife are killed the couple's two sons emerge as the most likely suspects but detectives later find business ties to the russian mob so it is a pivotal moment in the investigation, although it obviously Swerve turns out not to be the brothers. Believe in your children. Frances Sternhagen blows it wide open because she is the first one to confess to Grievy and Logan that in fact – oh, God, what's his name in the episode? Um, something Jarman because he owns Jarman Publishing. She, she, she's the one that confirms like Mr. Jarman brutally beat his children and goes into vivid detail about how particularly brutally he beat his younger son and, and sort of sets up the catalytic moment where kind of one of the moments that, that leads them towards the business partner and lets them know that it's not the kids is Francis Sternhagen is the one in the episode that says that the older brother eventually started standing up to him and actually broke his father's jaw 
And after that, it kind of like changed the abusive dynamic of the family. So maybe like possibly leading away from that. So starting a rich tradition with, I think, one of my favorite season one episodes. Uh, yeah, man. House, housekeeping, house cleaning segment. Only natural to segue into law and order. Because like I said, in terms of people who just got your average professions and day jobs, but are going to catch an interview from Logan, Greavy, Soretta, and oh, of course, the homie Lenny Briscoe and all the rest. House cleaners tend to be incredibly helpful in Law and Order. Except for when they're in... Uh, what was I, I just lost my train of thought. Except when they're worried about being deported. Which, and yeah, which always also turns into a thing. I feel like that especially starts playing out. Like, once you get to the mid-McCoy seasons, like... McCoy will do those things where he's like going so hard on the employer that he like threatens to deport them if they don't testify and shit. Yeah. Jack McCoy, what, what a rebel. So nonetheless, Patreon. Next, get the get the get the broom out and tell people how to shower our floor with cash. Patreon.com slash two scoops. That page that's patreon.com slash TWO scoops. Um no pod in this one. Patreon.com slash TWO scoops. Uh hindsight, maybe that wasn't a great idea. But uh here are the tiers, basically, or at least what they are for now. $1 a month and up gets you a, our humble thanks on the show, as well as access to a patron-only uh, Slack chat, which we will be in, and we'll put various notes and stuff in that we won't put ever, any ugh, won't put anywhere else. What is with me tonight? And then the big one is $5 a month, where you get not only that, but you also get exclusive weekly patron-only shows, the first of which will be... Uh, do you want to explain it or should I, since I'm the one who actually proposed this and you have not seen this? Well, again, going back to what we talked about in the opening segment and, and why we needed to go in on OJ Lascared, Chris, your boy, Bob Higgins. Um, it's only right that we take something that one of us introduces to the other. Like I said, this is the backbone of the show. Hey, have you, have you seen this thing? Do you remember when? And if one of us says no, it's a green light. We're going to watch it together. We're going to scoop it up. So set this up, Bix. I mean, you gave me you gave me the elevator pitch, and uh, it's it a powerful elevator pitch. So Barney Miller, great sitcom. Would you yes. agree? I mean, yakety sacks, bro. Yeah. The thing is, in the fourth season, they do an episode about marital rape, when marital rape was still legal in New York. Oh, boy. They sort of have the thread that would make the story interesting, and then they lose it. Badly. And this is also the first season where the show has a laugh track instead of a studio audience. And again, this is the show that brought you Yakety Sacks. So, we are going to watch it together doing a live commentary. That will be the first Patreon show. Uh, we have various different ideas we will do for future Patreon shows, but there will be one a week. And that will be available only for Patreon patrons at patreon.com slash two scoops. That's patreon.com slash T-W-O scoops. Also, of course, we've got an Amazon referral link, which is tinyurl.com slash, what did we, oh, two scoops Amazon. What am I talking about? Tinyurl.com slash two scoops Amazon, spelled either way. Uh, just you know the drill. Hopefully from other podcasts at this point. Go to go that go there using the referral URL. Add whatever. Buy, buy every season of Law and Order on DVD. Yes. Mothership, out. SVU, Criminal Intent, and also was it Trial by Jury? I don't even know if that's on DVD. I, I don't know if that get, is on DVD. Get Law and Order UK. 
I have. I don't think I've ever seen a full episode, but buy them all. Well, the documentary nonfiction one, I don't think, is on DVD. What was that called? Documentary it wasn't called Law and Order, though. It wasn't called Law and Order, but it was effect. It was considered part of Law and Order. Can you get Can you get the TV movie where it turns out the Profaci is actually dirty and crooked? Spoiler alert! I actually, I mean, you can't call it a shark jump moment, but as we'll get into, I'm sure over like, this is not this is not the last time we're ever going to end up talking no. extensively about Law and Order. Um, I actually kind of think it's, it's one of the more heartbreaking developments in TV history that Profaci turned out to be dirty. First, first, first couple seasons, man, the the just the dynamic between Logan and Profaci warms my heart, and it just it breaks me that Profaci turned out to be dirty. And then they realized they screwed up and replaced him for like a season or two with discount Profaci. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, we're trying to do this above board. We're not. We're trying to. We're trying to stay clean. Not trying to have. Uh, I look and I D look into us like Profaci. We're not hopefully going to avoid some kind of uh, the big showdown between him and Logan's on like the top of a building, right? Oh, where they talk about the wife's cancer. Yeah, they have like a, they have like a big like man to man where they like let all the exposition out for TV movie purposes on top of a building, mano a mano. That sounds right. I honestly have not seen Exile that much, only once or twice. Or so we're we're trying to we're trying to keep this money clean. Patreon, we're going to give you what you need, and also Bix, hearkening to what may come in the future, not everything is going to be insane marital rape-related episodes of no. burning Bernie Miller with a laugh track. However, I will say, uh, this past weekend, little Canadian Thanksgiving, went to see the Fam Jam. We're, uh, you know, sitting around probably like 2 a.m., maybe like 6 or 7 of us in the Fam, baseball game had just ended, go Jays. Going just clicking through some TV shows, and my cousin's wife mentioned that she had just changed the ringer on her phone to the 90210 theme, which, by the way, very disappointed because I knew in the back of my head what it was going to be, and it was definitely the, the tinny, super shitty synthy season one 90210 before they really fleshed the sound out and kill it for subsequent seasons. But this spawned a conversation where, um, all of like my other like cousins, there was there was probably four or five women in the room between the ages of twenty eight and thirty five, and all of them were like, "Oh man, I remember when I was young, my parents wouldn't let me watch Melrose Place." So clearly, my mother had different standards for what was appropriate for children. Her, her only baby boy, her only her only baby girl either. I'm all she's got. So I got to enjoy a little of our two scoop sun goddess. Heather Locklear Sambora. But some people didn't. So I'm just saying maybe in the future, Bix, there's an imperative above and beyond that she's our sun goddess for this podcast, our glowing, shining, heart-filling inspiration. There's another impetus for us to get deeper on the Melrose Place. Apparently there's a whole world of people that just missed it because their mothers thought it was a little too racy when they were somewhere between the ages of 7 and 12. And yet I got to watch it while I was like 10, and it was actually a topic of discussion each week in my, when I was in fifth grade, I mean, I was in this for a few years, but the fifth grade iteration of my, you wouldn't call it an advanced class, it was part of a program called LARC for learning activity, learning activities to raise creativity. Okay, I definitely had one of these things when I was in fifth and sixth grade, 
And they basically just took like all the overachievers who got super upset when they finished their math work in two to five minutes and other kids were like drooling on their papers and couldn't figure out times tables. And they basically just sent us to a room for two hours and had us build things out of connects. This was cooler than that, though. And our teacher would. Oh, of course, of course it was. I grew up in Halifax, Nova Scotia. You grew up in New York City. Of course your shit was cooler than mine. I'm in the suburbs, technically. I'm in eastern Canada, bruh. Anyway, yes, we'll have some Melrose Place to come. Uh, you never got to watch too much of it, unfortunately. But we'll uh, we'll have all sorts of Melrose Place reviews in some form. We still have to figure out exactly how we're doing this, because I keep explaining to Jordan that we don't actually want to watch the whole first season. I mean, I, I, I got to defer to your judgment on this, but I still got to see it. It's still canon. You got to see that other Vanessa Williams. Certainly the lesser of Nessa Williams, but there's only one sun goddess, man, and we got to do her right. At some point, we're going to end up watching Firestarter and other garbage, too. Wait, what's Firestarter? The Stephen King adaptation. You know, there's the Martin Sheen's like an asshole and wants to abduct little Drew Barrymore because she can telekinetically start fires and Heather Locklear is her mom. Oh, okay. That one. By the way, Martin Sheen is a dick in more than one. I think it's back-to-back King movies or near back-to-back because he's also isn't isn't he also the the terrible senator running for president in the dead zone? Who Christopher Walken needs to cap? I believe so. That sounds right. Martin Sheen, what a what a bad guy! Can you believe they went on to elect this guy president? Uh, oh, brother! Well, that reminds us we do we do want to have a uh, Aaron Sorkin discussion soon. And, uh, you know, maybe maybe if you're people who share some insights on the world, similar podcast interests to uh, me and Bix, uh, maybe you could do some deep mental inventory and figure out what kind of exciting folks we might want to have a little walk and talk about Aaron Sorkin with over the period of time. So, yes, Patreon, Amazon, twoscoopspod.com. What else am I missing, Bix? I think that's it. We're on iTunes. We're on TuneIn. We're on Google Play. We're on uh not Spotify. Well, why am I forgetting the name? Oh, Stitcher. Is that the Stitcher. thing? Yes. We should be. I'm, I, I need to make sure we get on Spotify, actually. Uh, I think that's it as far as those. Again, patreon.com slash TWO scoops. Tinyurl.com slash two scoops. Amazon spelled either way. But I think that's it for now. Let's move on to some uh, Law & Order related fun. I can't say that that was a cold open. I feel like we started hot, but... It's definitely time for a little bit of Chung Chung and taking it to the offices of Adam Schiff and all the rest. You excited, Bix? I'm woke.
as discussed throughout this, as we've teased, and as will, I think, become a long-running theme of this particular show, not this particular show, but this entire particular podcast, this episode this is program. Program. Yes, this, this, this fantastic program. It's, this, this is the first of many, and in various spinoffs, iterations, I think you heard, you know, even before we've got to the meat and potatoes here, the real guts of this episode, Bix and I had so much to say about your your profaches of the world that if you're the kind of person that will listen to this and think, man, I hope they're going to do another Law & Order episode, well, we're going to have your back for the rest of time until one of us dies or I was going to say Bix and I uh, have a have a gunfight and whatever, but I guess one of us will probably die in that case. I don't think I mean, Bix, we, we agreed on this rather quickly when we started thinking about how we would do our first Law & Order topic. I don't think when you talk about Law & Order with other Law & Order fans that there is a more stereotypical, icebreaker, hypothetical, bar convo starter than talking about the cast. And it takes a lot of different forms. Sometimes people will be like, well, what's your dream cast? Pick all six. Pick your two cops. Pick your lieutenant. Pick your ADA, your junior ADA, and your executive ADA. Or district attorney. District attorney, excuse me. But I would say kind of the most popular iteration of any law and order, any law and order conversation, especially the mothership. It's not about who has the most power. In fact, in a way, it's one of, one of kind of the more subordinate characters. It's got the most changeover throughout the incredible long running. How, how long did Law Order go? 20 seasons straight, right? 90, 90 to Exactly 20 seasons, yeah. No particular role in the show changes more, and I think none is more debated in terms of favorites, what you fancy, why you like them, how you view television characters, than how you feel about particular junior assistant district attorneys the second chair yes the second chair the folks the folks be sitting beside your ben stones your jack mccoys your michael cutters so here we are to give you the definitive hierarchy and by definitive hierarchy who knows bix and i bix and i discussed this beforehand in terms of the concept what we we're going to talk about but it's not like either of us composed lists and shared them and tried to come to some sort of consensus so it's entirely possible that Bix may may look at me moments from now and tell me that Alexandra Borgia is his favorite second chair assistant district attorney and there will never be a third episode of Two Scoops. Nonetheless. How dare you? Bix, you want to go top to bottom or bottom to I feel like we should go bottom to top because even with the joke I just made – I feel like we will have some consensus on the bottom of the barrel in the dregs of the second chair assisted just assistant district attorneys, all seven of them over 20 years of law and order mothership. Sound fair? Yes, sounds fair. All right. So like I said, we got seven of them from 1990 to 1993 alongside the homie Ben Stone. We got Paul Robinette played by Richard Brooks. Probably... I think the best flat top in history. People think flat top and high top fades are about, they think it's kid and play. They think it's about size. 
I am endlessly they like. Have you thinking li- it's about cameo? <laughs> word up. So, Bix, it's in a all honesty, <laughs> we should we should do an episode where we just watch cameo videos or or just like eighties music videos of that ilk. Um, in all seriousness, DJ. though, sucker, when, sucker, mm-hmm. sucker, DJ. <laughs> when you think of it, one individual who, whether it's for a role or just in their personal life, who personifies to the highest degree what that particular hairstyle should be. Has anyone worn anything better than Richard Brooks as Paul Robinette rocking what I would describe as the power business high top fade? Oh, God, no. And it's also part of his eternal struggle with whether or not he's a black man who's a lawyer or a lawyer who's black. Mm, mm, already cut into the soul of the Paul Robinette character. So following Paul Robinette and his conflict with, in fact, whether or not he's a black lawyer and a lawyer who is black, when he decides to go into private practice, he is replaced by Canada's own Jill Hennessy as Claire Kincaid, who also huge role with her twin sister in lingerie in my favorite David Cronenberg movie and one of my favorite movies of all time, Dead Ringers. Shouts to Jill Hennessy getting that other work. And uh, also, got to be real, can't say it's a good show, but uh, someone that often woke up around 10 or 11 a.m. for a long period of time where it was constantly shown in syndication. I'm not ashamed to say I've seen many an episode of Crossing Jordan. I'll say it. That's not too shameful. I I watched Crossing Jordan at the beginning. Your girl, Clara Kincaid. I don't want to spoil anything, but uh, let's just say she didn't exactly go into private practice. So... After, uh, there's, there's a, (laughs) you know what her twin sister's real name? I mean, her twin sister's name is, isn't it like they have like some similar name, right? Like it's like Jill and Jane. Like, don't they have like matching J names or something? Well, Jacqueline. So they're Jack and Jill. Oh, I never thought of that. But yeah, I knew they were like similarly, uh, similarly named following that up after, uh, like I said, well, well, for now, to be glib, we'll call it not going into private practice. Oh, yeah, and also, also, um, Jacqueline Hennessy appears in a Law & Order episode as Claire Kincaid. Oh, she doubled for her own identical twin sister in her yeah. most famous role? Yes, during the uh, first Homicide crossover. Holy shit, just goes to the show. When if Jeff, you're going to yeah, be an identical Hennessey twin— is uh, shooting Homicide. Sorry, go ahead. If you're going to be an identical twin— have a have a famous one. If you ain't going to be famous, make sure make sure you definitely get the pom poms out for your sibling, in in hopes that you can body double up for him. Replacing Jill Hennessy, Carrie Lowell as Jamie Ross, working alongside Jack McCoy. Eventually, Carrie Lowell uh, also decides to go into a little private practice action. She is replaced by a wife of one time New York Giants cornerback Jason Seahorn. It's your girl Angie Harmon. As Abby Carmichael from 1998 to 2001. Following that, Serena Sutherland, played by Elizabeth Room, who was eventually fired for, I mean, we'll, we'll definitely get to her last moments on the Law and Order mothership, which is one of the strangest moments I think I've seen in any show quite like Law and Order. Following that up, Annie Parisi from 2005 to 2006, 
for two seasons alongside Jack McCoy as Alexandra Borgia and your last second chair assistant district attorney in the two-decade span of the Law & Order mothership. Atlanta De La Garza as Connie Ruberosa alongside first Jack McCoy when he's promoted to your Manhattan district attorney, working alongside the homie Michael Cutter, who I got to say, Linus Roach, always really impressed with his American accents. Can we co-sign on this? Uh, I would agree with that. Wait, are you, why are you calling him Linus and not Linus like he's Eastern European as opposed to – I thought he, I thought he actually produces I, – I thought he actually pronounced his name Linus. Oh, he is Linus? He is Linus? Oh, let's like, – let's, like let's, uh, Linux? Uh, Linus Roach pronunciation. Let's see what Google's got here. Uh, <laughs> not seeing anything definitive immediately, but I could have sworn that I saw something where like he explicitly – Linus Roach, Linus Roach. The homie Michael Cut. So those are your your seven second chair uh, associate district attorneys over your twenty year period on Law and Order. Now, now we get to put them in order. Definitive question though: Are you looking at the same Wikipedia article as me? Are list of Law and Order characters. Uh, with... I was actually looking at list of yes, list of Law and Order characters. Did you notice who are who's tied for most episodes of those two of, of this group? Excuse me. Um. Let's see here. We got oh, that's actually shocking. Let's let's get into this as we, as we dig in, all right? Because I actually find that I find that provocative and strange, and actually incredibly surprises me. Cool, I dig. So I guess the way we're doing this is we'll go from worst to best. So I, I we know who the worst two are. How how do you how do you slice or split this particular hair, Bix? Because for those not in the know. We're obviously talking about Elizabeth Rome as Serena Sutherland and Annie Parisi as Alexandra Borgia. The whole run of Jack McCoy's assistance from 2001 up to 2006 before Alana De La Garza shows up to play Connie Ruberosa for the last couple seasons. It is uh, it's not an actually a particularly inspiring run of second chairs for the future district attorney of Manhattan. What side do you come down on? Who's worse? Is it Serena Sutherland or Alexandra Borgia, Bix? I'm torn. On one hand, I feel like uh, Elizabeth Rome is more offensively bad in the, her role. Whereas uh, Annie Parisi as Borgia is more... How would you say... Benignly bad? Yes. More non-existent. She is... She's very gossamer and very just breathy and existing only in the loosest sense in her Law & Order run. And it's hard to watch her in the role without thinking about how, like, a season or two earlier, she's in an episode as a stripper. Well, there is a long-running tradition of... Law & Order people making comebacks, switching up characters, making strange cameos... We were discussing before the segment off air, like, how many times does Asif Manvi pop up? It's just like, he works in a sex shop. He works in a bodega. He works, like, isn't there an episode where Paget Brewster is, like, a sex shop cocktail waitress or something? Wait, what? Okay, I'm looking this up. That's, I feel like, are you sure she works, like, in a leather shop or, like, something weird like that? I definitely didn't just imagine this. But my point being, people pop up in all kinds of surprising ways in those kind of roles. Yes, but uh, there's something... Hers is so close, though, to her 
main main cast run. I guess also too, unlike some of the other folks who we're going to talk about as we work our way up the second chair hierarchy. Well, then again, here, so, so was Briscoe's. No, okay, sure. But what I was going to say was she doesn't. Annie Parisi as an actress doesn't have the acting chops to pull off. She like she can't overcome being a stripper that recently, you know. Sure, and Paget Brewster, it does not look like was on the mothership at any point. I, dude, there's definitely an episode where she is some kind of like employee. I'm thinking like first, first six or seven seasons, possible Briscoe and Curtis season. I'm holding this, but fortunately, we'll have a million Law and Order episodes down the run. So, I I feel like you size it up in the right way. It just comes down to a matter of preference. Do you think it's worse if an actress gives a subpar role to a bad and poorly written and kind of annoying character? Or is it worse when you essentially have a non-entity injected into a show where it's built on this six-piece dynamic? Well, also, Annie Parisi is on the show during a worse overall period for the quality of the show. I would, I would, I would definitely say this. Although Elizabeth Rome is not a great contributor to the successes of the seasons that she's on, she's a character, she's a presence. The rip from the headlines angles are a bit better. The actual episodes. That Annie Parisi appears in from 2005 to 2006, uh, seasons 15 and 16. They're bad episodes, and she's definitely not helping. The, the best way to put this, and I can't believe we didn't, or you didn't take the bold opportunity off the top to repeat it. The best way, I think, to encapsulate Annie Parisi as Alexander Borgia was when we were discussing this a few nights ago, and we said, or you point out, she got in the main cast, but she's a cold open talent. This is someone that should be finding a dead body after the commercial break, talking to Lenny Briscoe for a minute, and peace out. She should be a jogger. <laughs> There's someone in the bushes. She sees some shoes sticking out. She's leading a uh, tourist group of joggers through Central Park. That includes old people doing their jogger size. And uh, one of them trips and falls and breaks a hip. And she's like, oh, are you okay? And then the old lady's like, yeah, yeah, I I just tripped over this. Ah!" Something like that. Jump cut to Jerry Orbach, trench coat. He's got some questions. And he's already working on the joke to lead into the intro 30 seconds from now. So that really should have been the ceiling for Annie Parisi. It's like, I think it's instructive that... Is, is it fair for you to say, like, th- there's a lot of, of people who, like, this is their defining role, you know what I mean? Richard Brooks is in some stuff, but it's like, how many Richard Brooks movies do you know? Right. If you think Richard Brooks, you're thinking of Law and Order, you're not thinking of G versus E. Exactly. You know, Alana De La Garza, who knows what might be covered. She's an absolute beaut, as we'll get to. But, like, Jill Hennessy and Karen Lowell have had long, flourishing careers. Angie Harmon is still on Rizzolian Isles, which— well, not anymore. Okay, but uh, Rizzolian Isles Just was on. It, yes. It was – I've seen maybe six episodes. I have a weird fascination with it, and I really want to see the whole thing because it's actually one of the shittiest things I think I've ever seen on TV. Um, also, 
know that Angie Harmon's like a crazy paleo conservative? I think I knew that, yes. Google, just Google like Angie Harmon politics. She is, she's absolutely horrific. That notwithstanding, what I'm saying is these people, they're, if they didn't go on to become massive Hollywood stars or anything like that, most of them still do stuff. I see Lifetime movies and weird shitty cable TV movies with Elizabeth Room all the time. What does Andy Parisi do now? Um, Let's see. By the way, I just Googled Angie Harmon politics. Google actually gave me a quote in a box when I searched Angie Harmon politics. And how horrifying is it? Let's see. It's from E! Online from, what is this, Vogue? More magazine? What is this? Uh, I'm a liberal Republican. They actually exist, she told the mag. Call it naivete or stupidity, but I didn't know that unless you are a Democrat, you aren't allowed to talk politics in Hollywood. But despite her political views, Angie is speaking out about her own opinions on homosexuality. I wish I had a car crash sound on the soundboard. Right there. Dude, you can only talk about politics in Hollywood if you're a Democrat. I get what she's going for. At the same time, when you think systemically oppressed people, don't you think Angie Harmon? One of maybe literally one of the most flawlessly beautiful people I've ever seen put on a television screen. Who married a former NFL player, even if his career ended unceremoniously early because he tore his knee in half a million times. When you think of oppressed people, I'm certainly thinking Angie Harmon. But Annie Parisi is literally – I know she did the following, but, I mean, her defining role, I would say – I mean, stitch back to my grandmother being a, a soap opera person. I was going to say hooker con woman on Rescue Me. <laughs> I haven't seen enough of Rescue Me. I didn't know she appeared, but it doesn't surprise me. seems like maybe Dennis Leary's type. But, dude, she's a – She's a, a soap opera actress, you know? She was on As the World Turns. This is her big thing. I wonder if there's more people who would recognize her from As the World Turns than for her run on Law & Order. I know, that, I know that if you did that Venn diagram, like I don't know how to any degree. I can't think of two shows that are harder for me to kind of put together in my head what the overlap would be, but – I, I feel I feel like I, I'd be ready for any answer. You know what I mean? Sure. Um, Especially where like her kind of defining trait that we think of here is is that she's so anonymous despite doing two full seasons of the show and getting murdered. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Law and Order! What a what a bad run fifteen and sixteen are as seasons. Okay, so who are our Cops. Okay, so sixteen is green, uh, beauty pageant cop, right? What beauty pageant cop? What's her face? Um, oh, 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 dude, she's the worst ever. Well, eventually, we're gonna probably get to one of these. All right, so she's Junior fifteen, detective. sixteen. Yeah. No, she's both only in sixteen. The... I mean, what's her name? Uh, Cassidy's only in sixteen. Annie Parisi is. Yeah. No, what I'm saying is, yeah, Annie Parisi is fifteen, sixteen. So it looks like both of her seasons are um, Fontana and Green and the short stint where Michael Imperioli shows up. And then the following season, Dennis Farina and Jesse L. Martin. But eventually when we get to the cop rankings, uh, 
I assume we'll go bottom to top again, but we won't exactly have a debate about the bottom, right? <laughs> no, no. Detective Nina Cassidy will be at the bottom. Yeah. That she, like Roger Ebert famously said about whatever movie, maybe the Brown Bunny or whatever. It's something that only exists to define the bottom of the barrel. The what ultimate you, basement. What do you think Annie Parisi's uh, one listing under awards and nominations on Wikipedia is? Oh, holy shit. Um, the ones that always surprise me are when, like, really shitty people that you don't think have been in anything notable or whatever. You're surprised. Like, oh, well, I mean, I guess they've been working. And then you're like, they've won three Teen Choice Awards or, like, some of these award shows that you just forget even exist. I can't imagine, though, like uh, – it's she had any run long enough to get a – you know, a uh, uh, best leading actress in some kind of guest role. I can't even imagine. Is it, well, it's going to be soap opera, right? Like, is there a soap opera awards thing? 2001 nominated for a Daytime Emmy Award for Outstanding Younger Actress in a Drama Series for As the World Turns. Outstanding Younger Actress in a Soap Opera. <laughs> and again, she was nominated. Who did she lose to? Look it up. Is anyone we know? Oh, God. Outstanding Daytime Emmy Award for, okay, so let's see, 2001. Uh, your winner was Adrian France on the Bold and the Be- Beautiful, as An- as Amber Moore. <laughs> the more you know. Thanks, Bix. So the bottom's been defined. Unfortunately, of our seven second chairs as assistant district attorney, the state of Manhattan, working alongside your Ben Stones, your Jack McCoys, your Michael Cutters, no one worse than Alexander Borgia, season fifteen, season sixteen. Annie Parisi, definitively stamped your worst number seven on the ADA second chair list. Unfortunately, it's close. It is close. And like we said, in Elizabeth Room as Serena Sutherland, you get a character that is definitely much stronger written. She is imminently more vocal the way she is played by Elizabeth Room. She is infinitely more confrontational. Um, you get you, you get that they're going for something. With yes. Alexander Borgia, you get again. It's it, it's just this non-offensive. She's just she's just a pretty lady in a two-piece suit. Unfortunately, and it probably, Serena, yes, yeah, Serena Sutherland. They're they're going for a character, and Elizabeth Room is trying to embody that, but it just doesn't work. It's just not good. Yes, and it probably should be stressed that the role that she had going into Law and Order, which was uh, her when she was on angel she was not bad on that i don't know if it's the different type of show or the different genre but when she was cast it was not like people were like oh her people were kind of hopeful that she would bring something to the role and then she didn't i mean well no she did bring something to the role but it was at the very end and uh should we just get to that right now well one thing i want to say quickly about the actual character of serena sutherland is one of the things that I think hurts her is, that, like I was saying, they're going for this kind of strong, in some ways almost adversarial character. You know, they they want to embody someone that can, like, stand up to Jack McCoy, maybe have different political differences and maybe feel differently about, like, defendants' rights. Ultimately, the reason she is fired by the late Fred Dalton Thompson as D.A. Arthur Branch is that she's overly sympathetic and basically goes out of her way to try to get uh, a, a someone facing trial like exonerated basically and goes out of her way to sabotage a case. 
And so we'll get to the final moments of her in a second. But I think one of the reasons the characters fails, other than the fact that they spell Serena Sutherland, her, her surname, uh, E-R-L-Y-N. Not Sutherland, Sutherland. Sutherland. Got I mean, Ys are very cool. But one of the things I think that it fails is like you never feel like in in the scenes where you've gotten you've gotten to the second half of the episode. They're on the prosecution side. They're building the case. When you get to the moment where there's some kind of hiccup or there's a moral discrepancy between whoever the first chair is and whoever the second chair is, when you get to those moments, you want to feel like there's some kind of parody, but from seasons 12 to 15, all the, the Serena Sutherland seasons, they build her up to be this kind of independent, d- differently considering lawyer, someone that's very concerned with, you know, with victims' rights and women's rights and these kinds of things. But ultimately when they do those scenes, which are – I think the defining scenes about how you feel about the second chairs, their ability to kind of prove their worth and that maybe they don't belong in the second chair – Jack McCoy just shits on her, and they ultimately make her her sort of worldviews and philosophies about law look stupid. It's weird, too, because except for um, – why am I forgetting the name of Andy Harmon's character all of a sudden? Abby Carmichael. Thank you. Except for her, the second chairs are all super liberal, and even though maybe – By the way, by the way, Bix, be, quick, quick stitch back to what we ended on last week. Do you think that's an inside thing? Okay, Do you think writers that. knew about Angie Harmon and her worldviews and thought like, yeah, we'll go on the other side of the spectrum with this one? I would think so. Or th- or that she's from Texas. That's <laughs> It was that simple. There's like, hey, where's the, the, the new one we hired, the one who's married to the, the white cornerback from the New York Giants? What's, what's her deal? And someone's just like, eh, she's from Texas. And they were like, I got an idea. Anyway, what I was saying, though, was – even though they're all like super liberal, she's still, I guess, arguably further to the left than the other junior ADAs. And she's the only one where all of the other characters make fun of her for it. Yeah, like th- like th- that. that is the dynamic that I think kind of kills this character. I don't think that Elizabeth Rome is necessarily great. And it probably is instructive on some level that her post-Law and Order career, like I said, is like... She's showing up to casting auditions for Lifetime movies, probably now competing against like Melissa Joan Hart and shit. But she could have been infinitely more successful if this character wasn't written to essentially be a self-defeating, undercutting contradiction. They want to proffer the idea that she is she is different and she's outspoken and independently minded and has different philosophies of law and jurisprudence. But anytime she expresses any kind of dissenting or differing political or legal view on the show, everyone mocks her or openly shits on her. And she just kind of has to make a cringy face and take it. And ultimately the other thing too, is there would be hope for a character like that. If she was vindicated, if there were episodes where when they're in the library and Jack has undone his tie and got the sleeves rolled up and they've ordered Chinese food, everyone's looking real weary after a 16-hour day if they get in some kind of legal debate that ultimately Jack McCoy dissents. They go forward with trial. They're defeated, and it's abundantly clear that her sort of – her idea about how to prosecute was better. That would be hugely vindicating. That would develop the character, but that never happens. She's always basically made to look like 
some kind of Pollyanna-ish fool. And then in her last episode, she and then the and then this this might warn a chung chung beforehand. Well, that's not even what I was going to say first. I mean, well, I guess we should play the whole scene, right? <sighs> I mean, it's only a couple minutes long. You you, I mean, you gotta you gotta. This is so as we teased earlier. Sometimes sometimes people leave as the second chair because they're going into private practice. They want to make that money. Sometimes they leave because. Maybe they can't go into private practice because they're dead. But not too many people get fired from this role. Serena Sutherland does for, like I said, sympathizing and essentially trying to. I think she's sp- the only one who gets fired. She is. Screen. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, for, for essentially, like I said, going back to making her look dumb and Pollyanna-ish and like she doesn't kind of get what jurisprudence and law is about. She essentially is not just overly sympathetic with a particular defendant, but essentially tries go, goes out of her way to undermine Arthur Branch and Jack McCoy's prosecution and essentially try to ruin the case. And Arthur Branch, after the fact, isn't having this and decides to fire her. Now, Bix. Might be a good time to point out that as we got into this, you said, are you on the same Wikipedia page as me um, that lists all seven second chair ADAs? And do you notice who's tied for the most episodes? I could have never guessed in a million years that Elizabeth Room was in 85 episodes. Tied for first place with Alana De La Garza. Which also shocked me, but makes more sense to me just because it's it's the end of the run. They are, you know, they're running out the clock, you know. The last well, few years of well, Law and Order, forget- they're, they're trying to get to 20 seasons. And you also forget that she has a season where she's with Jack and not Cutter. Yeah. So there's, yeah, the weird switch up when Jack is finally promoted to to DA. There's things that when you go back and know the show, you're like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Even the fact she's on four seasons and when I think like, I mean, it's on NBC. It's a network show. They're making 16 to 20 episodes plus a season. I guess the math works. But she is so poor in the role. And also, would you go so far? Would you agree with me on this that – um. And one other thing, too, that we should point out is even though we've critiqued some of these people's acting in these roles, um, with Serena Sutherland specifically played by Elizabeth Room, even though I've made fun of her for doing Lifetime movies and cable movies and stuff like that more recently, I would also like to point out again and, and double down the fact that even though she is not good, the character is markedly worse. And the character gets even worse in this scene as much as it seems like they kind of wanted to make her a parody of a liberal in her previous four seasons of episodes. It, it all comes to a head here. Oh, no. In this one, she's outright a social justice warrior caricature. Uh, and again, this is season 15. So we're talking 2004, 2005. Social justice warrior isn't a, a neologism no. yet. No, that that is not a concept. You know, at this time, people are not Twitter is not a thing. People are not being woke yet. This is not a thing at all. And yet, also, Bix, I I feel like I have a pretty good memory, but your your deep recall on some things is so fun. And all those eighty five episodes tied for the lead in the second chair. Can you remember any time? That her sexuality was discussed. Oh, how dare you give this away. In any remote fucking way. Is it mentioned at any point in the first 
84 and nine-tenths of an episode that she appeared in. Why did you spoil that for people who were not? Oh, I have to assume that people who are listening. It's not two things. One, well, most of these people know. Well, makes it funny. No, it's not. It's d- d- First of all, maybe people are, are kind of jumping to conclusions and what they imagine is about to, to be played for them is crazier than I just let the cat out of the bag toward. But no, like, like you said, that is not what defines the scene. It is the the dumbness. Just how do you know offhand? How is this the scene? Like, is this the penultimate scene of the episode or the ultimate scene of the episode? This is the end of the episode. It's boom, go to black credits. Wow. Oh, boy. So the late Fred Dalton Thompson, not pleased with the way the prosecution of this particular case no, has gone. No. She told everyone not to buy reverse mortgages. <laughs> All right. Not buy reverse. Get a reverse mortgage. Well, it sounds like Let, So, well, I mean, Serena Sutherland wouldn't have done that. She wouldn't have bilked old people out of her money. So let's find out what Serena Sutherland is about on a, on a political and sexual level out of nowhere for no particular fucking reason, just to further if you know there there's there's more than one second chair who gets put six feet under, but no one gets put ten or more feet under like Serena Sutherland. If you're gonna go out, dying has some dignity. It wasn't your fault. Going out like this, oh boy. All right, let's hear Serena Sutherland embarrass herself on the way out of the Manhattan District Attorney's office, and I think maybe the most insane, putrescent, inexplicable, insane scene in all 20 seasons of the Mothership of Law and Order. Also keep in mind she's having this conversation with an elected official who's like this weird southern corn pone politician (laughs) lawyer who somehow gets elected attorney of New York County. (laughs) Okay, here we go. Jack's already left. Yeah, no. Well, I'm glad you called. You know, I thought that we could use the... Actually, you know what? I need to point something out. You watch the scene, the way they react, and the way it's shot, it's not clear if these two were in the same room at all. (laughs) (laughs) Everything about this is a tragedy. Let's go back to the videotape. The tampering charge is leveraged. To get Foreman to tell the Queen's grand jury what he knows about the villain Wave a murder. Well, he'll be out soon, making records. I love that exposition, so I didn't have to explain it. The books without a conviction. Well, it's not a perfect resolution. But, you know, Anthony Harrison is looking at a life sentence in Queens. And as for Foreman, you've known my position all along. Actually, that's why I call. You know, Serena, if you were right, you were right for the wrong reasons. Also, what's the equity of your home? Emotion, <laughs> not facts. What was it you said? Everyone that you talked to said that he couldn't have killed that man? My emotional responses make me... An advocate. You're a superb attorney, and you ought to be involved in cases that feed your passion. How condescending and paternalistic is that, too? Serena, you must know that will not happen in this office. You damn woman with that extra bone in your head that makes you passionate every <laughs> once a month. Uh, Serena, what you got to understand is you have some extra anatomical features that mean you can't prosecute criminals. 
You just you can't. You're a woman and you care about people. You're an emotional person. You you really should just be an advocate. Holy fuck. This guy was also crazy is you know what? Going back to what we just talked about, I'm now confident in your affirmation of my suspicion and hypothesis about the way the Abby Carmichael character was written for Angie Harmon because Arthur Branch is clearly just Fred Dalton Thompson. Yes. A man who actually ran for president. <laughs> like, like he is, he is, he's playing himself as, as the district attorney. Continue. You can't. Now, a prosecutor can be zealous, but not passionate. And men have penises. It's great knowing that Fred Dalton Thompson literally believes his dialogue. Can be zealous, but not passionate. Advocacy is warm blooded. Enforcement's got to be cold blooded. And see, women are warm blooded because they bleed several days once a month. And you see, men are cold blooded, so that does not happen to them. Also, just like prosecution and justice is cold blooded. That's that's this guy's worldview of jurisprudence. Holy shit, he's elected. Who elected Arthur Branch? He's a monster. Also, keep in mind that on this show, his predecessors are old Jews. And d- distinct old Jews. Like, 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 almost to the point of, I want to say parody, especially because Diane West is not good. We'll, she'll get her day in court as, as the worst actual DA someday. Here on Two Scoops. Will we be counting Roy Thinnis as uh, Alfred Wentworth? Uh, if we include his one appearance in the pilot, I still think he is better than Diane West's Nora Lewin. Is that what her name is? In the yes, Nora Lewin. Um, th- I would include Alfred Wentworth's one appearance in the pilot, which is a fantastic episode. Um, I would include his appearance as significantly better than Diane West can. That said, um, it, it, just... I, monstrous portrayal every sentence that fred dalton thompson says in this it's it's not it's not even necessarily at this point that it's bad dialogue it's just this guy's the da and thinks about the world this way this is ghoulish i hate this all right i I guess we need to finish this well it does get worse oh absolutely and blind and even-handed Does Jack feel as strongly about this as you do? No. But it's my office and my decision, and he accepts it. A decision? You've already made a decision? I can feel it coming already. I have. Fuck. Hold me, Bix. Hold me. Is, this Is it next? I'm a lesbian. Fuck! Play it again. Is this because I'm a lesbian? Again. Fuck! What? Play it again. Is this because I'm a lesbian? Okay. No. Let me look up how many Law and Order episodes in total. There are, um, uh, okay. What's the easiest uh, total total law uh, order? Wait, hold on, let me do this. 
How many episodes of Law & Order are there? Siri? Did you hear that? Did she say 256 or 456? 456. Oh, wow. 456 episodes, Bix. In this particular role in the 82nd chair, seven different people, seven different characters, seven different actors, men, women, black, white, Italian, German, whatever the hell. 20 seasons, 20 seasons of this. Two decades on television, 456 episodes, dozens of scenes per episode. Never mind the ones that are filmed and now released on DVDs as bonus extras. In the history of this television show. Also, you forgot episodes that, if you look at the title cards, actually take place over months and months. Yes, long spanning. Because, I mean, obviously, police procedural, you know. But they're realistic about it. 48 minutes an episode, 456 episodes, you do the damn math. Is there a worse scene, moment, idea, or even three-second period of anything Law & Order related than this? Not that I can think of. And we're not done yet. Let's go back a little bit. Just to finish this up come on say it is this because I'm a lesbian it hurts every time no of course not because you won't reverse mortgage And there's Dick Wolf's name in all of its glory. Ladies and gentlemen, Elizabeth Rome, Serena Sutherland. Do you think we got to look up interviews? Like, has she ever discussed like specifically that scene? Oh, she thought it was awesome. That's because that's what I was about to say. I feel like the timing and stuff. Like, I feel like. Okay, do you think the failing of the scene is, like, the actual advocacy? Like, do you think that they're trying to, as much as we talked about them mocking this character and sort of turning into the proto-SJW liberal idiot whose ideas about the world are just incompatible with, you know, reality and stuff like that. Do you think they were kind of going for a redemption here and thought this was the kind of thing that was empowering? If I remember the interviews correctly, I'm going to try to pull some up now. She was like, well, Dick Wolf said, do you want to go out with a blast or with a whimper? And she was like, I'll go out with a blast. And this was it. Yeah, I mean, blasts, by the way, normally kill people, destroy things, create craters, scorch earth. This is not this is not the kind of blast you want to go out with. By the way. If you search, like, Serena Sutherland lesbian after the Serena Sutherland character's Wikipedia, from AfterEllen.com, Law & Order Serena Sutherland comes out on her way out. January 23rd, 2005. Uh, no, no one was prepared for a final scene where she comes out as a lesbian, blah, 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 blah. Oh, my God, dude. 
Oh, dude, this is this is an actual um, quote from Elizabeth Rome to the Huffington Post revisiting the end of this um, in 2014. Um, she describes it as Dick Wolf saying, do you want a splashy ending or a typical Law & Order ending? Splashy is how they describe that. When they made that scene, what they were thinking was splash. Yeah. Uh... By the way, reading through this, apparently, Essie Patham Markerson didn't know your longtime uh, lieutenant had no idea that like this is how it transpired despite being one of the main characters of the show and actually had to watch it on NBC to get the reveal of the show that she is absolutely synonymous with. It wasn't in the script I got, Murkerson said. I was like, well, let me watch the show too. That, you know what? That, dude, I'm, ha- I'm happy we looked these details up because that seals it for me. Think about this. If they don't put it in the script, if the actual idea is that everyone's kind of in on this character being a utopian whipping girl and whatever, it would be in the script so everyone knew ahead of time, like, this is how she's going out. If they're trying to hide it even from the cast and use some sleight of hand and just like, you really got to see how this plays out. They were clearly proud of this. They clearly thought this was enterprising in some way. Oh, yeah. <sighs> and, and, and in all this, she also has no reason to think that that's why she's fired. That's the other thing, too, is the entire conversation they had. Like, that line is so bad that it distracts from all the stuff we were just talking about beforehand. You know, she worked an incredibly complicated case and with multiple defendants and submarined her own office and openly tried to exonerate one of the defendants. This is obviously grounds to be fired. But no. But no, instead, the reason she thinks she's fired is... Is this because I'm a lesbian? Like, <laughs> So, R.I.P. Serena Sutherland, the, the, the great social justice martyr of the Law & Order franchise. Now, I do but- have a theory. I mean, I've never seen this confirmed anywhere. This is probably just me reading way too much into it. Is that... She, you're, she's supposed to think like, oh, is this like weird caricature-ish Republican man say, using the word advocate as like a code word for gay? Oh, so there's yeah, okay, so <laughs> there's there, there's potentially the idea that that yeah, she's Arthur Branch's suggestion isn't really that she should be an advocate; it's that she should go be gay somewhere else. <laughs> yeah, I'm not. I'm not as liberal as, say, an Adam Schiff or a Nora Lewin. Nora Lewin or Adam Schiff. <laughs> uh, also, I like the idea now that you're introducing the idea to all, like, for the people who are Law & Order fans listening to this now, people are going to watch these seasons and see Fred Dalton Thompson, this dead man, and think, one... He hassled everyone in the Manhattan DA's office to get reverse mortgages. Two, he hates gay people. And three, he's an anti-Semite. Are you comfortable with this, Bix? Do you see what you've done to the reputation of a late great man? Well, aren't the targets of uh, reverse mortgages old Jews? 
Have you fallen on hard times? And they still show those ads despite him being yeah, dead. He's dead. Oh, my God. It's so trippy. Um, and they're also so, they're very late in life ads where he has the weird, big, bushy eyebrows. <laughs> R.I.P. Fred Dalton Thompson. Congratulations on being the only uh, – other other than Richard Belzer, the only person who's ostensibly got to play themselves on Law & Order. <laughs> Which is a topic for on another day. On a regular day. basis, yes. Yes. Uh, well, in Belzer's case, he just gets to play. He has to play himself in everything, which is amazing. Nonetheless, yeah. yeah, yeah. Now let's, let's now let's spend much less time on the actual good ones. Yes. So there's there's your bottom of the barrel to find. Number seven, Andy Parisi is Alexander Borgia, and courtesy of the writing staff and some less than stellar acting, but largely the writing staff, the terrible character Elizabeth Rome as Serena Sutherland at number six. Bix, we're getting into the area. I feel I feel like the middle of this is where we might have some dissension. If you gotta plug someone into that five spot, who do you go with? Ooh. Hmm. I think I accidentally closed the listing too, so give me a second. So let's see. So I almost feel like it's better to try to figure out who's best and then kind of settle in the middle. I don't know. What do you think? So I mean, what what do you what do you sort of see as the, the bubble list here? Who are your, who are your contenders in the middle? Who would you get, who would you sort out in these three, four, five spots? I feel like Carrie Lowell as Jamie Ross is probably the middle. Interesting. If I got to go next, as much as I generally enjoy her as an actress and, and sung her praises earlier, and like I said, love Dead Ringers. Shout outs to her her sister Jack, Jill Hennessy as Claire Kincaid. It's not bad in any way. Yeah, you know, I mean. Not necessarily the strongest character, but she's good. And I think they do a good job. The, one thing I will say that I think is kind of artful about the the way she develops in 93-96. First of all, she is um, the only person other than Alana De La Garza as Connie Ruberosa who is a second chair for two different uh, fellow ADAs. She does the last Ben Stone season in season four and then works with Jack McCoy. Uh, for several more seasons, up until she gets owned in a car crash. But for them moving in this direction, you know, it's season four. She's the first female. Like Females come, one of the things that people complain about Law & Order is that, you know, the second chair ADAs were always these beautiful two-piece suit women that were ultimately subordinate to Ben Stone, Jack McCoy, Michael Cutter, whatever the case might be. And were cast in a very tokenish way at the beginning. Yes, and maybe you can say something for like it's starting to set the the boilerplate and template here, but I think they do a kind of artful, if maybe accidental, job at painting the Claire Kincaid character as a, like a, a bit of a legitimate ingenue. She's obviously legitimately very clever and has a great legal mind, but she doesn't have moral failings. She has, you know. Kind of, she, she wrestles with her morals constantly and sort of like doesn't – she's not someone with like a defined political ethos. She's someone that can like have legitimate back and forth with, with Stone and McCoy but second guesses herself in, in a way that seems entirely compatible with the character, the, the way Jill Hennessy looks. The fact that like physically she is kind of daintier and younger looking than all of the other female second chairs. I somehow feel like it kind of comports. She seems precocious and like she has a great legal mind, but there's, you know, she she wasn't hasn't quite found her footing as a, a woman of law yet. And it is established that she 
maybe gets in over her head with relationships with uh, supervisors. Yes. Yes, which becomes part and parcel of lots of Jack McCoy stuff and clearly talking about, like, you know, them setting that template of, like, the female second chair. In a lot of cases, I would say regrettable because, again, this is the moment where they start to set that template of subordinate, submissive women who ultimately are in many ways not as clever as Ben Stone and Jack McCoy and Michael Cutter, but – Again, it seemed like it's kind of the opposite of Elizabeth Room. Like it works with the character. Jill Hennessy isn't yes. a mind blowing talent here, but like her character is well written. And even when they kind of do salacious things, it makes sense. When she dies in a car crash, you know, at the at the end of season six, six. Yes. I was gonna say six or seven. When she dies at the end, um, it's. It's one of those moments where, like, it doesn't feel like cheese. You know what I mean? Like, it feels like it feels like a truly random death. It's not like it's it's not like they were trying to prosecute some kind of like king, like drug kingpin, and she was like abducted or something crazy like that. You know what I mean? No, she got t-boned in a, a car. Circumstantial stuff. Yes. Yeah. So the the way that they kind of use like benign, but very or, 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 or kind of like pedestrian but very serious things like dying in a car crash or whatever that's not your average how you go out on network tv if you're gonna die in a show like this normally and even if they're gonna kind of dig into the idea of her getting inappropriate sexually with some of her past superiors it it actually works with the character and i think works kind of i almost feel like i almost want to like upper a little bit on the list now that i've like considering this out loud um I feel like Jill Hennessy is one of like she's not a great actress, but like I said, something about the character and her her youth and the styling of it all, like it it just clicks and seems to make sense and, and complete the Claire Kincaid character and legitimize it. Even if I think a lot of people uh, see her character as setting a negative precedent. Yes, and I mean the thing is too, Jack ends up in a relationship with her because he finds her intellectually stimulating and challenging and interesting as a colleague. He does not defer to her because they're in a relationship, although the relationship is never directly alluded to on screen till years later. Same Correct. with her death, too. Yes. So I feel like her in, in the five spot— um really? although I am I am I am okay okay you might you might be swaying me here because here's the thing for for my middle I feel like in this this bit it's her or Angie Harmon as Abby Carmichael but the Actually, more yes, I should have said Andy Harmon the, the the more I say this out loud I feel like you and my own words like hearing them go back through my ears has kind of swayed me a bit I think I think, I think we're going to bump Jill Hennessy up. I think I think Claire Kincaid's going to that four spot. I think she's going to be the middle middle. Oh, so she's the actual middle then. She's she's the middle. She's stuck in the middle and getting her ear cut off. Okay, so I, I th- would so so actually number five's not the actual middle then. Yeah, because you know three on either side, right? So oh. I guess I mean the Abby Carmichael character has grown on me over the years, and it's nice to have a contrast from the others. But she's not that good in the role. No, it's there. There is a level. I think what helps is obviously there's there's no way around it. It's it's not even just like oh hot woman on TV thing. It's like Angie Harmon is awesome, like Helena Troy shit. Like she is a flawless looking human being, and in such a way that even in a pre HD era, she can literally just stand there 
And you're just like, who is this person? What does she have to say? Yeah, Carrie Wall is Jamie Ross is the one who's portrayed that way. She is portrayed that way. We'll get to why I think that that she's she's getting into the upper echelons and and maybe getting some top three status here. But um, yes, it's you know, I guess one of the reasons I felt instinctively like I wanted Angie Harmon as Abby Carmichael as the middle is there is like a very even baseline. Like we talked about, she's doing one of these other things where the writers have clearly stitched her up to play herself as the second chair and given her her own political views. And I mean, again, she's not bad, but there's no, like, there's no like great. And one other thing that I think kind of hurts the character because I, to me, actually, this is maybe one of the defining reasons why I put the Claire Kincaid character over Abby Carmichael is Claire Kincaid's defining scenes are like we talked about. There's they're like they're very human. You know what I mean? Like they're things that you can imagine being in these high pressure situations as, like I said, kind of the, the ingenue archetype who's intellectually precocious yeah. but doesn't have all these experiences. Like not only is that a g- great character, but there's a diversity to like what she's forced to confront and like yeah, what she has to mean, deal she, with. She and Connie are easily the most well-rounded characters of the female characters in this role. On the other hand, in all honesty, and again, this is this may not be a complete dovetailing because I've never met the woman. This part might not be a dovetailing with her actual her actual self, but Abby Carmichael's defining moments, she's basically just a bitch. Like, am I wrong? Like any any scene where she steps to Jack and really like lays down her legal philosophy, it sounds like her line should begin with, "Are you fucking kidding me?" It just also seems so weird and dated. For some reason, it's more dated than anything else on the show to have a pro death excuse me pro death penalty person talking about actually using the death penalty in New York. Yeah, <laughs> no kidding. I mean, like I said, this. There's kind of like the reverse Serena Sutherland character where they're really trying to fatten up and exploit the idea of, oh, our second chair is not going to agree with everything. Well, you know what, though? Other than death penalty, though, they don't make her too characterish. They don't make her too caricaturish, but again, like, like the way that her and Jack McCoy kind of debate ethics and stuff, like, like she's the kind of person that will, like, there's multiple episodes, because around her, I feel like around those seasons, there, there's some earlier, you know, I, I feel like around the Carrie Lowell era, 96, 97, 98, is where they really start to tease out the fact that, like, Jack McCoy is a brilliant prosecutor, but has nothing else in his life except clash vinyls and a motorcycle, and is completely pathological about this. So he really doesn't give a shit if he has to like break the law to convict these people in some cases. So I feel like around these time, like around that time, and especially going in to the Abby Carmichael seasons, these are a lot of the episodes where you get these. You know, they're in one of the libraries in the DA's office, and she's going to lecture him about ethics, but it's never philosophically well reasoned. She just basically says like, "You're being an idiot," and I just think like, that's how you wrote this. Yeah. So I would put her I mean, like, like, here, oh, five, like, to be honest. So, like, do you think it's fair to say that, like, as in terms of the characters, even 
I guess it's tough with, with Annie Parisi as Alexandra Borgia because, like I said, like the whole reason she's at number seven is just she's so non-existent. She's so barely a thing that it's hard to assess her any greatly than being the poorest. But in terms of the actual – like the legal mind thinking about – like they'll, they'll give they'll give Abby Carmichael these scenes where like you know she pulls some weird precedent out and they have her do like a – 45 second speech where like she reads a bunch of legalese about some case and it's productive but generally speaking in terms of actual dialogue and the development of the character i think she's kind of clearly the poorest legal mind of, of any of the second chairs because like i said her, her objections are always just these kind of like you know personal personal moral flavors and kind of calling jack mccoy an idiot to his face and getting mad no she's not contributing yeah yeah, she, she's basically – like I said, she she just complains and bitches a lot. And every so often, like, Blind Squirrel finds a nut, and she finds some great precedent that helps. But in the next episode, she's right back to, like, are you fucking kidding me right now type stuff. So are we agreeing with her at number five then? Yeah, I got to um, – this is this is why we got to do so loud. You know, if we'd, if we'd done the list before, I probably would have came in armed to argue, like, that she was better than Jill Hennessy. But as I teased it out in my head and, and listened to it out loud – at this point, I kind of feel like it's incontrovertible. So we get to the top three. Well, no, well, wait, wait, wait. so I guess. So I, what did I say? I'm doing then. I'm do, I'm putting. Uh, I, we're Lowe's in agreement now. At number at number four. Oh, oh, you're 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 going you're going like that, huh? She gives a weird performance. I feel like, like it's a little like. Oddly mannered and like there's something off about her performance. The character is written well, albeit like the writers are clearly like trying to get into her pants. (laughs) I mean, she was a Bond girl. Yeah, she was a Bond girl, but I mean, still, it's like there is no character on this show who comes close to her in terms of like it's it's at least once an episode where it's like. Well, you're a beautiful woman. Well, well I'd love to well, see you in lingerie. It's like, well, also she is the only. Okay, so with Abby Carmichael, they make it even though she's mad serious because she's you know tiger power achiever bitch woman. They make, it's very clear that she's beautiful, even if she's like you know rocking a skirt below the knee or a pantsuit. You know, Jill Hennessy. You know, like I said, cute ingenue. Like it's not like there's a lack of sexuality to any of the second chairs. I mean, I might fuck Richard Brooks's brains out with that flat top, but Carrie Lowell's character, Jamie Ross, actually, there are several episodes where she actively just pretends like she's thirsty and acts like she wants to fuck perps and criminals to extract information from them. Yes. And, there's and like, the- it's, it's like a well-trodden thing over three, like two seasons or three seasons for, for Jamie Ross. She only she's only in two seasons, seven and eight. Seven, eight, seven and eight. Until her return later as a as a district attorney, or excuse me, as a as a uh, criminal defense attorney and a judge, and a judge later. This is the other thing I was going to say though. Even though I think she maybe there's some of the lowest lows in terms of handling a beautiful woman who happens to be in a position of power like this and be in a, a high stakes situation. I mean, this is this is people's this is literally life and death. Try and send people away or kill them or, 
find justice for people who are murdered, wrong, rip off, whatever. This is this is justice. One of the biggest cities on earth. It is no small feat. But as low as some of the lows are, I love how they bring the character back over time. And again, I love that they stay relatively like they stay relatively faithful to how they lay her worldview and ethos out throughout the the, throughout the Jamie Ross run. You know, it's common that there are scenes where Jack's trying to get her to burn the midnight oil, not in a creepy way, although R.I.P. Claire. Right. And it's like, but she's, but she'll, she'll be like, yeah, she like her just dude, like, and, and without the bitchiness of Angie Harmon, but with like a charming level of sass, just looks at him like, I have kids. Like not all of us are freaks like you. And when she leaves to become uh, a criminal defense attorney, it's hedged on the fact that she wants to be able to provide for her daughter and have better hours and care for her more and spend more time with her. And they don't sacrifice the idea, like her ability to be upwardly mobile and go from being, you know, a, a second charity prosecutor to being a criminal defense attorney to being a judge, but it being hinged on her being this kind of super achiever mom that constantly, right, which, which gives me more hours while letting me make more money yeah. and like the, the, the character makes sense and is like f- philosophically consistent throughout. And apart from advancing my career. Yes. And, and and which makes sense. Like it's, it's what someone like that who was that kind of achiever, who's that clever would probably do with their life if they were a single mother. Right. And it also gives, it also gives her this different type of relationship with Jack where it's like, I could leave at any time. I want to be here. That's the other thing I was going to say too, is a lot of the second chairs are adversarial in some way and are good at standing up for themselves, but she is the one more so than anyone else of all the seven that you always believe at any time could just look at me like, I don't need this shit. Yep. So, and, so not, and, not because, and not because she's a bitch like Abby Carmichael, but because she literally doesn't. She can do other things. Yeah. So for me, as much as doing this has teased out my love for the Claire Kincaid character, I still feel like I, I got to I gotta bump I gotta bump Carol Lowell's Jamie Ross up a, a little bit. So where where is she for you? Uh, she's got to be my number three. Claire Claire Kincaid gonna be she's gonna be in the middle of the sandwich. She's gonna be slotted in F four, but think uh, think Jamie Ross making making my number three spot here. Okay, so Jamie Ross is four for me. Uh, for three, I'm going with Lana De La Garza's Connie Ruberosa. So at this point in time, I feel have we skipped someone for you? Like, are you about to tell me you think Claire Kincaid's your favorite second chair or something like that? Um, I was thinking. I mean, should I just say it? I think I'm gonna. I think I'm going with her as number two, and uh, Richard Brooks is uh, Paul Robinette is number one. You realize that there are people listening to this that uh, you know, as we've already talked about, with kind of the the sexual politics. Oh of god, I just realized that after I said who are already like, oh, of course, this fucking show where they spend a million hours talking about law and order and women, and they choose the guy as the best second chair ever. You know, this is coming. <laughs> are you ready? So <sighs> it's a very close race between the two. All right, so. Explicate your choices for me here, and then we'll have a minute to talk about the best second chair and maybe, I think, maybe the most dapper man in the history of police procedurals. 
Okay. So, number three, Connie Ruberosa. And she's a much more well-rounded character than the three that preceded her for the better part of a decade. She's given kind of that the weighty adversarialness, if that's a word or a term. I feel like it's beautiful they end on her because she's a great composite. She has a lot of the best traits of previous second chairs that we've discussed. Yes. And even though like she's the first time and it's with Cutter where they finally start to bring back the idea of maybe pairing them up romantically and they don't even end up doing it. It feels weirdly earned. Absolutely. Like you buy you buy that he's falling in love with this woman from working with her every day. And also too, I mean, again, we'll we'll get we'll get uh And you also the, buy that she's too professional to notice. Yes. Like and, and that's and you know, we'll we'll get to in the actual way. well yeah, we'll get to the first chairs in, in their own right someday, but like because it's the end and like we talked about, they were clearly just trying to get to the twentieth season. The best parts and also this is coming from a person that finds Anthony Anderson perversely interesting and really likes Jeremy Sisto. All there really is for the last four seasons is how kind of shockingly good the DA dynamic is. Even when the material is bad and the plots are bad and the writing's not great, I always feel like Linus, Linus, Roach, Alana Delagarza, and Sam Waterston, their whole stick together is fantastic. And like you said, it, it feels earned. You know, when when they do weird innuendo, like with Jack McCoy, it always feels like they're almost making him like unduly lecherous and weird in a way that's not necessarily consistent, even if it is kind of his backstory. The way it's written in the actual moment is not nearly as graceful as the way you would imagine Jack McCoy betting these these contemporaries of his. Although, although when they introduce it in his first episode, it's framed as basically, look. I'm a brilliant lawyer. Sue me for thinking that other brilliant lawyers <laughs> are interesting romantic partners. <laughs> yeah, which is like that's not verbatim, but that's basically more or less yes. The, you know, the he shit. literally says something like, "Sorry for finding my coworkers more intellectually stimulating than someone I'd meet at a bar." Yes, yeah, I believe that is the actual line, which is fantastic and gets to the the Jack McCoy ethos. But with Connie Ruberosa and Michael Cutter. Yeah, it's like like you said, like you get this legitimate Hollywood romantic quality where even though they don't push it super hard, there are all these weird passive intense instances where like you just you, you just feel like that that it exists and creeps. Like it is it is really like one of the better long running examples of legitimate quiet sexual tension I can think of in like a network show like this or anything. Yeah, and what was I trying to say? And I kind of like that they don't ever end up paying it off. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, that's the thing is m- normally things like this are not brought up for character development. They're brought up to get the juice, to get the splash, to get the payoff. It's to have someone die or someone get pregnant or someone get fired. Right. They, it- they do this because it, it – you know, I, I don't know what the whole I, like the idea was, but what ends up artfully happening is they just define these characters as, I mean, real humans. You know, like that's how people feel about each other. If you if you work in an office with, you know, legitimately great intellectually stimulating contemporaries in a a realm that you find 
rewarding or edifying or exciting. I feel like I feel like out in the world, maybe even in New York County in the Manhattan DA's office. I feel like there are star-crossed, invisible Michael Cutters and Connie Rubarosas. You know what I mean? Right, and that it ends up being, and that they don't even devote that much time to it, where it's like, she's not into him, and that's okay. Yeah, and he's he's not bummed, and like, it's all good. It doesn't mean he wants to bang her any less, and that she's probably never thought about it before. It's just, it's never going to work, it's never going to happen, but again, the tension. I mean, and that's the thing, that's that's... The tension's exciting because you never get the relief. It's always it's always just probed, but never never fully relieved. If you were gonna knock anything about, um, actually, you know what? I was gonna say Alana De La Garza's character, but I don't even want to put her name in it because has nothing to do with her. She does get hit with some bad like POC woman writing in some of the later seasons. Um, the Later episode, I'm not sure which season it is, whatever one has, like, the kids being used as the drug cartel hitmen, where, like, she feeds the fucking, like, eight-year-old kid empanadas and talks to him in Spanish and breaks him and stuff because he doesn't have a mom. Hate that shit. Hate that. Just like, oh, like, Spanish mom's going to come and save it because you're, hate that stuff. But other than that, like, that's really, in terms of the way she's written, the way she's acted, whatever, those are the only times I watch... Um, those episodes and think like, ah, they're not doing this character a service. So for me, she's number three. Where do you put her? Well, I mean, I guess if I put, it's interesting. I've, and again, this is one of the reasons this is fun. If you'd instinctively ask me off the top, I would have guessed without dedicating a undue amount of intellectual effort towards this. I'd have thought because I just always loved her and really like liked the character. I would have imagined that I would have ended up installing Carrie Lowell as Jamie Ross as number two, but I put her at three as we did this. And the more we tease it out, the more I think about if not 17, 18, 19, 20 being great seasons, then at least the prosecution side and their the dynamics between the three being interesting, what we just talked about with the 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 Cutter and Connie dynamic. I think I gotta stick it out for Alana de la Garza and put her at number two, surprisingly enough. Really? Okay. Uh, I mean that's I can totally buy that. And even if you say they're not great seasons overall, they're still by far the best seasons in a decade or so. Oh, absolutely. But like like I said, when I say this not great seasons, it's that Part of Law and Order and its early intrigue, and you certainly see it more in earlier seasons before it turns into the, the rip from the headline shtick, but um, their ability in the later seasons to do kind of like resonant episodes diminishes in like a sociocultural way. And plus, the show's old and a million things have come after and aped it and whatever. So it's like Law and Order, I think, is a show that works best. When it has topic matter that people care about and kind of gets to the heart of like what the what the zeitgeist is at, at any point in time, and those episodes, you just know you're going towards the finish line. But at the end of the day, it's an acting performance. If you got decent characters and people are going to show out and embody them in an interesting way, it's still going to work on some level. So and we talked about Claire Kincaid, who's my number two. So. Which this is this is my shocker of the thing. I never would have imagined. 
anything anything else to say for our uh, morally conflicted dead ingenue who it's never got to go into private practice? It's really close for me. But when I think about it, I think he's think that Robinette is still the most interesting character that gets to confront the most issues and is the most fully integrated into the entire cast. I agree with the latter part, but here's one thing that I guess we'd be remiss if we didn't probe. Do you feel like your choices are, you know, Actually, reverse, you know nah, your, your choices are reverse chronological, right? I'm okay, gonna, but I'm here, here's the thing I want to say, though, is do you feel like you're, you're kind of tending towards Jill Hennessy and Richard Brooks because they were the first two in the second chair? And this is th- this is the first four or five seasons are the time when it's what I just talked about. It's when ripped from the headlines didn't mean necessarily that they were like. Well, it's going to be Michael Jackson, but he's a toy maker well, instead also of a musician. People weren't aware of all of these stories all the time. Well, well like, also I'm, too, dude, you're at, you're still the time then where it's not that people aren't aware of the stories, dude. This this is this thing. This show is on and starting and going into seasons one, two, three, four into the nineties at a time where people still think you can fucking get HIV from a toilet seat. Or that black people literally do have an extra bone in their head that makes them predisposed to crime or some other insane shit. The sure. world, the world, the world, not that people still don't have fringe, crazy, inappropriate, inexcusable beliefs. But again, this show started so far beyond and before massive public access to the internet, 24 hour media, and, you know, ideas about wokeness. Like, it's not just that people aren't aware of the stories. There's a lot of things happening here that like people, like a lot of people who are watching network TV aren't even aware exist in the world. Sure. I mean, I, I mean, I'm trying to think of a specific example and for some reason I'm coming up like now I'm thinking about it a, a little bit more and not just because you were shaming me over the, uh, uh, gender politics of it. I, I'm the more I think about it, I think Claire, Oh, you're going to cower for right. Number one. I'm going to call you a racist if you do. What do you got against POCs, oh, pretty... <laughs> I got this on lock. Well, you see, he has an extra bone in his head that makes his flat top stand out. <laughs> Jesus Christ. He's got, like, can we do, can we do some, like, r- reverse phrenolo- phrenological racism? Paul Rabinette has an extra bone in his head that makes him an incredible lawyer. <laughs> isn't, that, isn't that what the racial stereotype is? Do you think there are any people that are going to be listening and not get that, that we're making fun of racial stereotypes? <laughs> By the way, if if you're listening to this and like, why do they keep talking about having extra bones in their head? We're obviously making fun of racial science. There's a reason that both of us wanted to put Richard fucking Brooks at the top of this list. He's incredible. But you, you have cowered. You've you've you're you've been shook by the vision. Can I put, of, put can I put them in a tie? No. No. How many cha- would, how many chairs is- are there at the table? You ever seen where are these third chairs at? There's no room. There, there is a case or two where they have a third chair, isn't there? There's not enough room. The table is small in this courtroom, Bix. You got to pick one. Who are you, who are you more scared of? Reveal, re- reveal your underlying uh, anxieties, tensions, and pathologies here. Actually, now that I think about it, though, I mean, if we're talking character-wise, do we ever see Paul Robinette try a case? Mmm... There is, yeah, there is one where, um, 
Okay, I take it back. He doesn't try the case. He ends up doing um, some kind of pretrial thing because, like, Ben Stone, like, broke his wrist or something like that. Yes. And just, like, no-shows. And he just, like it's, – it's it's kind of dope, too, because they set it up kind of like this weird swerve, like, oh, shit, Stone's not here. Can Robin handles it? He just aces it. No, like, no big deal at all. Of course he can handle it. The reason I ask that is because I feel like Kincaid is the one who they end up giving the most time to showing that she is a good trial lawyer. Yes, absolutely. She definitely gets the most time doing. Also, one thing to that to that thing, uh, to that point, um, I feel like in the Kincaid seasons, they they do a lot more time with like pretrial motions and bail hearings and things that like second chairs would traditionally like handle. And they really use those to tease out that she is like a, a good and strong legal mind, even if, you know, there's still a lot of um, moral, professional, personal wrestling. Right. And even at like the arraignments and stuff, she is given more meat, to, like in terms of plot, than everyone gets later. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I guess Jamie gets some, and to a degree, Abby, but after that i mean it's really just uh you know rem- we we'd like them remanded but it's like oh how am i and uh, but no i'm not gonna remand them for this uh, the blah 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 defense says they're upstanding have ties to the community you know what the fuck ever um huh. so claire's your number one you know what i am i am gonna go with claire as 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 number uh, fuck r.i.p claire you were a good one you were taken uh, from us too soon I, it's it's they're very close. I could put either in the top spot. I'll I'll just say that I'll, I I keep going back and forth. I and I as and I was before we were recording too. So so Robinette number one for me. Things that don't actually matter. First of all, I literally think I don't mean just like in police procedures. I think literally the styling of Paul Robinette. I literally think he is. One of the best dressed characters in the history of television. Think about think about this. Think about the first four seasons. Think about all the episodes because one thing like it still plays out because New York. But think about in the first four seasons or so, Bix, how how many episodes have the dynamic of having like these big Fifth Avenue lawyers who like. You know, they have like a million like clerks and interns under them to like file yes, motions and, and all Paul day. Is the only one who can outswap them. Yeah, and like and like all this kind of stuff. So they go so hard on like that that kind of uh, class dynamic all the time in, in the early seasons, and it's and it's such a it's such a major part of it, and yet like he like. They they find they find a great way to kind of like use that class dynamic to to really get Paul Robinette over. But more than that, in terms of sartorial splendor, when you see these characters like Arthur Gold and all these dudes, who the implication is that they're making seven figures a year just showing up for trial and being brilliant with a fistful of gold rings. Because of the styles of the day, they're all wearing these garish, oversized, four like uh, double-breasted suits with like four rows of buttons and like no pocket square, no fucking tie clip. Their pants aren't tailored. Literally, in that time period on television, in a police procedural where 
people who are police and lawyers and detectives are putting on suits. I literally think he's the best styled man on television. His suits, he only wears two-piece suits. His shit fits. He's one of the only people that wears, like, respectable with ties. His hair, as mentioned, is immaculate. And Richard Brooks is a beautiful man. Any disagreements here so far? None whatsoever. I'm, I'm trying to figure out if there's any additional way I can articulate it. I mean, like, like just Richard Brooks is just – and going back to what I talked about with Angie Harmon, he's someone that just like – everything – like he's someone that stands in front of a camera, and I want to hear what this man has to say even before he opens his mouth. On the other hand, when Paul Robinette does open his mouth, I love everything about the character, and I love – I love that a show like this – and again, I know the dynamic's different super early on, but the way in which they're able to make him both the best adversary to his first chair intellectually and legally, morally and philosophically differing from his immediate superiors, but all while he is the anti-Abby Carmichael, the understatedness – in the way in which you have to tease out how this man feels and what he truly believes. Like to me, the defining kind of Paul Robinette moments in this show, whether it's someone telling him something when he interviews them and he has to non-verbally chew on the detail and suss it out, or someone says something to him and you kind of have to feel about like you have to try to read his face and wonder how he feels about it. Oh, him? The, well, you know what? Our top, our top three, or well, my top three and three fourths of your top. I, I feel like uh, Richard Brooks, Jill Hennessy, and Lana De La Garza are also easily the best face actors of the second. Alana De La Garza has a leg up though, because like again, like obviously I know that there are people going to listen. Like, oh, he spent a lot of Jordan Brandu spent a lot of time talking about how attractive the second chairs are, even though I compared. Angie Harmon to like having a hell in the Troy kind of thing. Alana De La Garza is actually her actual facial features are so articulated that like like her, like she has a face. Like didn't she like right after Law and Order or simultaneously the last few seasons? Like she was the face for Garnier and stuff for a while in in the West, right? Like she has a makeup sales face. She's got like natural eyebrow arches. Her like lips are like immaculate. Like she has like an angular face in such a way that like yes, 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 yes. Like there's some kind of unconscious human thing where like even if you even if you were necessarily attracted to this person, there's something about the geometry of her face where you just stare at it and, and legitimately. Like, oh, she has very pleasing features. Not even just that it's pleasing. Uh, she has very um, distinct. Uh, distinguished? No, that sounds like you're sure. That's yeah, <laughs> distinct. More backhanded. <laughs> Distinguished makes it sound like they've done things on their own. They're the actors, but no, it's it's it, her acting ability. She's a great nonverbal actress, but it's just it's hammered home by the fact that she has a face that carries it so well. You know what I mean? Like like some people just have faces that emote better and and in a variety of ways. Right. Whereas Richard Rich, Brooks is much more of a stoic. Yes, stoic. Is that maybe like the best way to maybe describe Paul Robinette? Yes. And something else, I mean, to go to what you were saying about being a, like, a a good, like, legal, like, uh, partner or whatever you want to say to the first chair executive ADA, it feels like that's something that just keeps decreasing with each new replacement. Yeah, I agree. 
Like I think, Claire is supposed to be Claire is presented as me being slightly less capable than Paul. Jamie's slightly less capable than, and then so on, and then it starts to dip bigger and bigger, and then at the the end is the exception. With Connie, going back to what I was talking about, do you think you maybe favor um, the Robinette and Kincaid characters just because the 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 topic matter and the episodes and everything is kind of so much better in the beginning? Because I mean, it helps. I mean, it definitely helps. Like, there's 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 so much more for them to do. The situations kind of play better, and it, it's hard for me to kind of separate those two that said like i think in a show like this especially in the early seasons where a lot of the topic matter is not that law and order stops being like provocative and because again ripped from the headlines but the way in which it hits on social issues it's it's resounding on a different level and so to pull off a character that is incredibly interesting like how many how many great tv characters other than like a second chair ADA on the most well-known police and legal procedural in history, you would not think that the defining characteristic of that person would be stoicism. Like it doesn't seem to make sense. Well, that's also why he matches up well with Stone because Stone is a different type of stoic. Yes, Stone and and is also like this bubbling like. <laughs> You well, they, they play up his they play up his Catholic him. guilt and his morality and yeah, all his yeah. weird foibles, and then he's the opposite of Jack, where Jack's like, "They took people's lives," or whatever. I know I didn't do his voice, but you get what I was trying to do. But you, you, like, that's a terrible impression. But somehow it does. It well, captures what, yes, the exactly like it captures the way that he just Jack McCoy's responses when he says things like that. You know, that's like when you're reading a book, and. A good author will know like when to use something like he said, he stated, or he snapped. When Jack McCoy has those moments, snapping is the only verb. I like it's like it's like the extra bone in his brain just broke and he lost his mind. Yes. The thing I re- or I Jack should say, McCoy the is thing. clearly the one Law and Order character that has an extra bone in his head. <laughs> Which, by the way, vindicates us from the racial science because he might be the whitest dude in the whole show. Um, so one thing or another thing I really like about Paul Robinette and I think kind of gets to how good the writing is in the earlier seasons is, as we talked about, when you get into the adversarial role, which again, like the reason we keep talking about this is not just because it's part of the show. It's it's part of law. That's literally how this shit's supposed to work. It's supposed to be a intellectual philosophical dialectic going on here the as time goes on not only do you get less of it in an impressive way as you just said but the way in which it manifests is much different in the later seasons you get arguments about this person's innocent this person's guilty i believe them i don't in the robinette seasons you get and some with Claire too, you get discussion about actual tactics at various points in the trial, which I think is a watcher is much more interesting. It's one thing to kind of take this polarized view on like, well, like the death penalty's bad, or you know, is it wrong to bomb an abortion clinic or whatever, versus the, like the scenes where Robinette tends to kind of get the most heated with Stone and really most vociferous. And his critique is like 
there's multiple episodes where he'll go in on Stone for like his cross examination techniques or something like that, or like what he did did or didn't say to a witness, and they'll like vastly differ on how like certain people should have been handled. And I think those kind of bells and whistles for something that we're half the show is supposed to be the legal eagling part. It speaks more to the heart of what I would want Law and Order to be always. Right. Whereas later, it's more like, oh, we just found this magic piece of evidence. Absolutely. You know, and, and that's the other thing, too, is they do a great job. There are multiple episodes in the first three seasons where Ro- like Robinette, like a lot of the episodes will do these weird things where like they want to glory up the cops. So they'll do like this weird collaborative effort where 40 minutes episode, they'll have like a breakthrough mid trial and McCoy will be like, call Briscoe and whoever the hell he's working with now. And they like come back out in the field and then like execute a search warrant at some previously unknown location and find the smoking gun Deus Ex Machina type thing. Robinette a lot of time busts people on just really clever type stuff. Like he's good at just like surveilling people and like listening to their words and sort of, you know, even some like I love in season one, the, the torrents of greed, obviously Frank Masucci being the, the stand in for uh, John Gotti. The fact that ultimately the whole thing comes unraveled because Robinette is just keen enough to realize things about building permits and that Bruce Altman is Harv Beagle is like a shit slumlord who's paying off people in the city offices and ultimately is able to bring down the most powerful crime family in New York vis-a-vis building permits and greasing the wheels for oh, – and- the absolute best Robinette scene is him pretending to be the building inspector when Profashi won't show up. <laughs> Going back to what we already talked about, that weird swerve, like with the stone thing with the tennis wrist, where like – and you assume that, dude, Robinette is not an actor. This dude kind of has this stiff personality. He's not going to be able to pull it off. And also too, that is – oh, I'm so happy you brought it up because it's a brilliant scene in that – he he quickly is just like he's down for the cause. He doesn't, he's kind of initially has some trepidation, but commits to it. And as soon as he commits to the role, even though after the fact he comes back into the truck, he's like, "How was it?" And you can tell he's a little bit ashamed that he has to play up his blackness. But the way in which he does it, when he just like snaps into the character and starts talking to the building inspector, it's it's so effortless. But then to go back just moments later and have him kind of express, even if successful, some small amount of regret that like, I'm an incredible lawyer. Like, this is not me. I hate, like, I hate that I kind of had to play the character in that way a little bit. Again, it's like the subtlety and nuance with this guy. Yeah. And it's like that. I honestly, I don't know if there is a single scene as good and as fun of that than any of the other second chairs get. Also, I think it's brilliant because the personality dynamics between him and Stone are the best. Like, they're clearly written for each other as opposed to someone still on the show. We're replacing someone. They're going to go with the McCoy character. They're they're such a perfect fit in the scenes, especially in the early seasons when you're dealing with very, like I said, of the time, cultural zeitgeist sorts of things. The scenes where they kind of play on – Stone's ideas of deeply rooted Roman Catholicism and morality, and even though he never explicitly says he's a believer, it's very obviously clear that Ben Stone is religious and like kind of feels compelled by 
his his childhood religiosity. And so when he gets into these moral panics and when he starts freaking out and like looking at his stopwatch and his vest, it's always the scenes where Robinette is able to dig into his morality and kind of in that like that that quiet yet booming way say things like like is is this really what you're worried about? Is this really what you care about? Is this really is this really how we want to do this? But it's never the Abby Carmichael like, are you fucking kidding me? Yep. So I guess should we just go over our list one last time then? To, uh... One last time, seven and six, incontrovertible. Your worst second chair, ADA, in the history of Law and Order, the Mothership, all two decades, 20 seasons over 20 years. Unfortunately, it's the soap opera actress, Annie Parisi is Alexandra Borgia. Number six. Elizabeth Room might have been able to do something else with a different kind of role. Unfortunately, writers decided to run Serena Sutherland into the ground from Jump Street. And uh, uh, she's not, I'll, I'll say this outright. She's not in at number six just because she's a lesbian. It's because the writers of Law and Order apparently hated Serena Sutherland. And there's nothing Elizabeth Rome could have ever done to save that. Personally, when we get up to the five spot, oh, we, we both agreed on Abby Carmichael at five, right? Yes. Yeah. In the five spot, it is Law and Order's Hell in a Troy. It is the statuesque, beautiful, and paleoconservative pro-death penalty Angie, excuse me, Abby Carmichael, played by Angie Harmon, but also ostensibly actually Angie Harmon. <laughs> then we begin to differ just a little bit. Up in my four spot, giving it to Bix's girl, his grand his grand ingenue supreme. It's the dead Claire Kincaid who never got to go into private practice at number four for me, followed by Alana De La Garza as Connie Rubarosa when she's not feeding empanadas or whatever the hell to eight-year-old cartel hitmen to get them to bust open cases for. At number two, or excuse me, reverse order for me, Jamie Ross, played by Carrie Lowell at number three. Number two, Connie Rubarosa, Alana De La Garza. As, as we teased out, surprisingly great acting surprisingly well-developed character the dynamic with connie and cutter magnifique and probably the best thing you can say for the last few scenes of law and order at number one for me it's the homie paul robinette best dressed man in the history of police and legal procedurals richard brooks the iconic flat top best in history he's got the tie clip on wait, he's wait, wait, in is he actually stone. better dressed than bobby simone oh uh, like okay but think about the timelessness. Like, like there's a reason I brought up like the, the 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 timing of the show because Bobby the Robin dresses like a mob lawyer. He dresses like a mob lawyer, but like Robinette Robinette is given a wardrobe that should not be timeless, but ends up being timeless, which I find fascinating, and he just kills it. Yes. Okay. So I would agree with that. Okay. So then where, so we agreed on seven, six, five, seven, six, five. And then we get iffy in your top four, Bix, what's your hierarchy? Number four, Bond girl, Carrie Lowell as Jamie Ross. Don't hate her because she's beautiful. Uh, Hate her because she's an incredible single mother. Oh, thanks. (laughs) I mean, be jealous because she's an incredible single mother that became like, just, just kept going onward and upward up the judicial chain. Sure. Number three. Number three. Uh, She's got an extra bone in her head that makes her an incredible single mom. Alana Delagar says Kai Rubarosa for uh, the reasons that Jordan just talked about. Uh, number. Tied for number one. 
Claire Kincaid, and Paul Robinette. Tied for number one, this guy. It's a photo, it's a photo finish like Mark Otega and Joseph Pam Bam So, Bex, I suppose the only thing left to say is, do you consider yourself a lawyer that's black, or do you consider yourself a black lawyer? fun as it was to talk about the mothership for like i said i think the most well-trodden but exciting sort of law and order cast related conversation you could have we got to show some love to the rest of the franchise and as good as law and order is as much as you can still catch it 27 hours a day on tnt and I've, we and ion <laughs> across and Across these things, I feel like – I feel like especially in Canada, if you got some extended cable satellite-type action, you still end up with more Law & Order Special Victims Unit because what makes better TV than sex crimes? What's, what's less horrifying than that? However, Bix, you're a man who's down with some legal eagling, which is part of the reason maybe you share this love of Law & Order, and in your doings – you get up to a lot of FOA requests, FCC requests. You're hitting up government offices asking for documents. Now, historically, I think the first time – I've read FCC complaints before, but the first time I remember seeing a whole bunch of FCC complaints and just being like, wow, this must be a treasure trove. It was a few years ago when Deadspin published multi-years worth of FCC complaints about NASCAR races, <laughs> which you can surely look up. Following that, saw more FCC complaints, and any time I see any kind of site that has FCC complaints, I'm all over it. Earlier this year, back in February, the fine folks at Muckrock digged up, digged up, dug up a whole bunch of FCC complaints related to, you know, law and order special victims unit, uh, suits, these kinds of shows. So... They didn't include anything for Law & Order, but there was some Law & Order Special Victims Unit. In the interest of diversity and the fact that, frankly, the nature of SVU, I think, leads to a 
crazier kind of complaint. More colorful to, at the bare minimum. Yes. For sure. Uh, so, so Bix, I know – At bare minimum, for sure. Bix, I know you've seen these before, but can I can I read to you and serenade you a little and make make you and everyone else laugh? Sing me to sleep. So an FCC complaint we'll we'll start with from uh, July eleventh, twenty fourteen, Daytona, Florida. While watching the oh. show, oh, what a shock! <laughs> while watching the show, Law and Order Special Victims Unit, a commercial for a TV show called Satisfaction showed a very inappropriate sex scene and also show a woman grabbing a man's private parts. My daughter was watching, and I found this inappropriate. It's the middle of the day, not late at night. This kind of forms, I think, the backbone for what is the fundamental Law & Order Special Victims Unit complaint, which is these people who appear to be clicking through TNT, Ion, or any of the other number of things you mentioned during the day and are somehow expecting the wiggles for their children and are shocked – when Christopher Maloney rips the Blackberry out of a perp's pants and yells, he's got a phone full of butts. Devoted to women's butts. <laughs> you actually, yeah, it's incredible. Um, and by the way, I, I screwed up. It was obviously Mariska Hargaday's. No, actually, I think you're thinking of a different clip. I was only able to find this one. I, I, like, I like that they kind of used the same line twice in oh, different episodes. Oh, they clearly episodes. did. No, I remember the one you're talking about. This is of photos that they i think took from the perp that they assembled on their uh cork board are you ready for one that dovetails with our actual recording right here from wilkes-barre pennsylvania um, april 9th 2014 I, I, I guess i'm prepared 2014 april 9th this one is written in such a fashion that um even before i read the opening line based on the fact it's written in the third person this is clearly someone who is deaf or has some kind of handicap where they had to relay this to someone to actually write the fcc complaint for them now you have to read this verbatim though i i would do it no other way the problem description consumer said that she is handicapped now and cannot use internet very well or write she used to work with Department of Child Services, and there's a commercial about a Trojan vibrator, and in the same commercial, there's a child. The mother is talking about missing the father to her child and opens the drawer to see a vibrator after she is tucking her child into bed. She thinks this is sexually explicit and would like the commercial pulled from TV. She said she doesn't care if they advertise the vibrators or the condoms. However, she doesn't think they should have a child in those types of commercials. She said she has worked with disturbed people before who will get off on this type of thing, and she would like to prevent that from happening. I, I had no idea until I started going through FCC complaints that literally half – of the FCC complaints are never about the actual fucking show, Bix. They're always about the commercials. Every time. I feel like if she's telling the truth about working with disturbed people and doesn't mean coworkers, <laughs> that, that's not ter- a terrible one, especially since it's being relayed by a third party. And maybe something is lost in translation. Maybe. You'd hope. March 5th. I mean, it 20- does seem a little bit weird that you would put a kid in a vibrator ad. Eh. But at the other hand, what? Moms can't use vibrators? You What? You think you think a strong single mom who worked her ass off all day at the office like Jamie Ross can't come home and just bang a few out? 
How dare watching you. some Duran Duran videos. <laughs> More to come on that. Night mix for sure. Indeed. Staying within the fine state of Pennsylvania, March 5th, 2014. Do we have any Here. Michigan? We'll see in a second. You know why I'm asking, right? No, actually. Because when I did the article about the WWE... Oh, 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 the Rusev thing was... Well, was no, that the, a large number were from Michigan. Was, was, was the Rusev guy from Michigan, though? I think he was, wasn't he? I hope so. You mean Rusev? I, yes, Rusev, my bad. Actually, does he spell it in multiple different ways in the FCC complaint? Um, Rusev, 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 Rusev. So I, I digress. Now, now, near the end of the episode, the female detective is in the final stages of getting dressed after an apparent sexual encounter. For a few seconds as she's getting dressed, it appears as, as though her left breast is exposed. I did not think that frontal nudity of this type was acceptable on the TV broadcast. Bix, here you got someone that clearly hates one of your most favorite shows, NYPD Blue. They're complaining about SVU, but what they're really complaining about is the precedent that NYPD Blue set of strange partial network TV nudity. Or dorsal nudity, as the FCC dorsal referred nudity. to it at one point, yes. Our next— Or, or, as, or as we call it in, real, in the real world, side boob. It's, I mean, yes, basically, yes, side boob. We go to Sumerian, Kansas on the same day, March 5th, 2014. Simply, Detective Rollins was shown with her shirt up, fully exposing both breasts, nipples and all. Again, that never the... happened. We go to Evansville, Indiana. What? Wait, do you think that one's just a troll? Maybe, but I, I think it's, I don't think it's a troll so much as someone that probably saw a side boob and just insanely overreacted and just lost. It, it broke the, it broke the extra bone of their brain. The thing is, also, if someone's trolling, it's like barely anyone is seeing them unless some idiot like me eventually requests them. Like, the only ones that I've deemed trolls are the ones that are, like, super obvious, and the stuff I've gotten so far, it's only, like, one or two. Yeah, the FCC doesn't seem like the kind of office. You're not hitting your target demo, you know what I mean? Right. I, I don't understand, like, what what's your goal there? Is it just, like, you're... Just want to screw with some poor FCC middle management person who is, who is so over that shit is not going to be fooled by your troll because they don't care probably. Like it's not it's not like trying to like get someone on Twitter who's already like like unleashing a tweet storm. You know what I mean? Right, right, right. We'll stay in the Midwest. It's just, it's, it's Christmas time, December sixteenth, twenty thirteen, from Evansville, Indiana. I viewed Kmart's Joe Boxer commercial. This and this again. They're watching Law and Order Special Victims Unit. This person is about to be offended by a Joe Boxer commercial. Okay. I've viewed Kmart's Joe Boxer commercial at least a dozen times this evening while watching Law and Order Special Victims Unit. And I find the ad, all caps, extremely offensive. This ad showing men in their boxer shorts thrusting their pelvis forward for each note is, all caps, objectionable, lowercase, all caps, offensive to me. I'm a 61-year-old Christian lady and grandmother and, all caps, do not want to view this crap when I'm watching television. Of course, the not-so-subtle message is, all caps, sex. Which, all caps, sex is the best kind as far as I know. Also very good Berlin song. <laughs> oh, shit, actually is too. <laughs> even, even a 12-year-old can figure that out. The, the, the inappropriateness of the boxer commercial, not that that is, in fact, a Berlin song. Initially, I viewed the commercial about a month ago, and I would not seen it lately on the major networks. I figured Kmart had pulled the ad due to complaints by consumers. 
However, now I see it mostly on Fox in the later evening. I'm not a prude because I enjoy Law and Order, SVU, and Criminal Intent, and House, which deal with sexual crimes and diseases. All caps shame on the idiot that created this ad, and all caps shame on Kmart, the FCC, and the networks for allowed sick it to be shown. Bix, 61-year-old Christian lady. She's all right with serial rapists who take it beyond the streets and suddenly try to, like, break into Mariska Hargaday's apartment three times a season and rape her. But the Joe Boxer ad where the dude flashes a little brain against his smiley face boxers is too much for. There's more cognitive dissonance with this than just about any other show, right? Yes, and it, it, it's – oh, oh, boy, does it keep coming next. We're going to Round Rock, Texas. October is this our last one? How many more of these are we doing this time? Well, this this is this is the one this is the one that I wanted. Uh, like th- there's a few in a row that are short that are th- the cognitive dissonance comes out. So I wanted to really I wanted to hit some of those ones because we talked about like the weird commercials and people who but we have a few that are strictly people who apparently are watching the show but somehow just don't aren't aware that it's about sex crimes even though it's explicit that it's about sex crimes from the very beginning of the show. Well, maybe they should have named it Law and Order Sex Crimes. Maybe they shouldn't have changed their mind on that. October 25th, 2013 from Round Rock, Texas. This program's main subject matter is special victims of sexual abuse or assault. I used to like it. I used to like it, but lately it's become unbelievable, audibly sexually graphic and disgusting. I stopped watching because I feel like it's way way too mature, sexually explicit. And disturbing in subject matter to be on any time in my house, much less the middle of the afternoon with kids running in and out of the room. Yank it. First of all, yank it probably isn't the way you want to end that shit. <laughs> Two, what? So you like the show initially, but then it's just the show The show about sexual assault just gets too rapey for you? Like what? Well, in fairness, that did kind of happen. They definitely go more out in, like I said, the thing where it's like every perp every season tries to rape Olivia Benson in her well, apartment. Also, well, no, and also when um, – what's his face? What was the name of the – the uh, Neil Bear. Oh, he, yeah, yeah, He left his head writer and showrunner was replaced by um, – who's what's his name? Um, from In Treatment. Your recall on this stuff amazes me. I took over a show where I mean they he was like yeah we, we, you know it's ridiculous the show needs to actually be more about the the crimes that the actual SVU would be investigating because you know the show for years it was like oh oh wait was this did this person get his dick cut off because he raped someone no 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 it was actually about stolen diamonds <laughs> so they, I mean they did they did do that for a long time so I I can almost get where the motivation would come from the show did get rapier but you're still watching Law and Order Special Victims Unit. Nashville, Tennessee. It's Independence Day weekend, 2013. Oh, I that was the last one. one last one. Nashville, Tennessee, Independence Day weekend, July 2nd, 2013. During an episode of Law and Order Special Victims Unit, I had it recorded, so I'm not sure of the exact time of the original airing. There was a commercial for the USA show Suits. In the clip, one of the characters uses the Lord's name in vain in a commercial. I didn't know you could even say that on television, but regardless, it should not be played in a commercial. I choose not to use that word, and therefore, I choose not to watch the show if I knew they used the words. You didn't choose to watch the show. You saw a commercial for it. <laughs> Actually, this is the very last one I'll read just because it is so terse. 
and I think ties everything nicely together in a bow. Okay, if you say so. March 20th, 2013, Salinas, California. Man shouts, you had sex with a prostitute. And then in parentheses, plus suggestive images, loose clothes, etc. End of complaint. Wait, why are loose clothes worse? I I don't know. Also, on all the things that could possibly offend you on Law and Order Special Victims Unit, man shouts, you had sex with a prostitute. These people. I, that's that's. You're watching Law and Order Special Victims Unit. I mean, I would honestly say that devoted to women's butts is more offensive than you had sex with a prostitute. The loose clothes, though. Uh, I mean, there are, are certain. I guess there are certain anatomical things that look different in loose clothes, and maybe somehow look more pronounced in loose clothes than they would in tight clothes, or what they would consider normal clothes. But this, this person has unusual thoughts about these matters. Well, in case lest you think that a bunch of old people that are watching cable television, just kvetching and complaining about things, are all hung up on, you know. These sorts of matters don't have a sense of humor and maybe don't know what's good fashion-wise. Let me tell you, sometimes there's an older gentleman out there who's got a sterling array of suits. He's got a beautiful wool overcoat. Always the nicest leather gloves. Does he really use brill cream? Does he include hairspray as well? How is his hair so perfect in every episode? Bix, we'll discuss one day. Well, actually, when we do detectives, I mean... Well, when we do detectives, will we be doing all detectives or senior and junior split? We'll cross that bridge when we come to it, but unless you're a real Mike Logan lover, we're probably going to put Lenny Briscoe on top. But my question, Bix, is as great as Jerry Orbach was, R.I.P., as nice as it is to watch him on the television, would you rather take a drive in him? Women, huh? You can't live with them, can't sell them. I sold women for 10 years. Great business. But Europe is changing. Yeah. Look, Mike, what gives? I say no calls, you ring up some bimbo. Yeah. I say no visitors, the bimbo comes over. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You know, I mean, the guy's got needs, and I'm, but I want to let you know it's not going to happen again. In this business, you can never be too careful. Got to pay more attention next time, Mike. Stop it. Go inside and grab the cage. What, here? Yeah. Hey, knock twice on the door. Oh, oh and Mike, yeah. take this with you. As mentioned, I don't know that any face, any person is more synonymous with the Law & Order franchise, Van Jerry Orbach. And how, dare, ma- how dare you disrespect Roy Finnis that way? <laughs> Sorry, Sir Alfred Wentworth or whatever. Which, by the way, in the pilot, I love they give him the shittiest office that you could ever imagine a Manhattan TA having. He's just like under like mountains of file folders. Nonetheless, Jerry Orbach's the face and the hair, with all due respect to the homie Richard Brooks, Mr. Brill Cream. 
And on top of that, Lenny Briscoe's maybe the defining Law and Order character. He's what you think of first, and it's not just because he's in the cold open making quips over dead bodies for forever. However, Jerry Robach's getting dead and gone now. I mean, all we got is Law and Order, watching Footloose on TV. Or not Footloose, Dirty Dancing, trying to put Baby in a corner. My bad. Don't yell at me. Bix's, Bix's pre-surgery, Jennifer Grey Love comes out. Um, the... <laughs> that, that, that's the thing that broke the bone in your brain? A, jo- a joke about Jennifer Grey mangling her face and your love for her? That's the thing that got you? After all this? All right. So, clearly... Uh, this is this is a man to be celebrated um, posthumously and in a way beyond simply going back and watching old episodes of Law and Order or rocking to Patrick Swayze in a leotard, sweatily dancing around to Hungry Eyes. Also probably the Jewish Gentile character in the history of those. Oh, uh, yeah. That's, <laughs> that's maybe a show unto itself some other day. Well, remember, he's half Jewish. We will tip the hat to... Longtime SRN listener and now new Two Scoops podcast convert, the homie Brandy Jeffries over on Twitter hit us up. I just popped huge for Law and Order at Two Scoops Pod Talk on BTS. Have you guys seen this beautiful thing? And sent you and on the official Two Scoops Pod a link to orbachcar.com. If you go to orbachcar.com, you'll be referred and redirected to a Kickstarter. Which, on a show where we're getting the Patreon rolling, we're trying to get you to give your dollars, it's not that we want your money, it's that we're here to remind you that, you know, in this world, if you open your wallet for the right people, the right causes, the right projects, the right machinations, exciting things can come to fruition. As we record this, there is eight days to go on the Jerry Orbach Memorial Art Car proposed by one Brandon Bird. 307 backers have pledged $11,500 to this point. This is the description. I want to transform a used sedan into a lowrider-style tribute to Jerry Orbach. I'm Brandon Bird, an artist living in Los Angeles. Driving around Southern California... I've often seen people use their vehicle as a memorial to a loved one who's passed away. Usually, it's a decal in the car rear window, noting the person's date of birth and date of death. There's also a much larger tradition of using the entire car as a surface for self-expression. I started thinking about the kind of art car I'd like to make. Who would I want to pay tribute to? The choice was obvious. I would like to raise money too. One, buy a used sedan. Something big and American made from the early 2000s like a Crown Vic. You're goddamn right a Crown Vic. Just like Lenny Briscoe would have drove his whole fucking career. Two. Hire some of Southern California's talented airbrush muralists, pinstripers, and body paint experts. Three. Work with those artists to turn the sedan into a custom work of art dedicated to the late Jerry Orbach. But why Jerry Orbach? Jerry Orbach has long functioned as a source of personal and artistic inspiration, a muse, if you will. Many years ago, I found myself in a rut. I was about to be unemployed, and the most exciting thing in my life 
was Law and & Order and Law and & Order Marathons on TNT. But in Jerry Orbach's character of Detective Lenny Briscoe, I found a spark. Here was a man made weary by the world who nonetheless persevered. His acerbic wit and hangdog attitude couldn't mask a natural warmth and kindness. I got off the couch and put an art show together. I made a Law & Order coloring book, which is the first thing that I ever did that became a viral hit. And that snowballed into an entire career of making ridiculous pop art. I owe a lot of good things in my life to Jerry Orbach. His own life was also filled with kindness. He wrote a love note to his wife every day before heading to the set of Law and & Order, and he famously donated his corneas after passing away. If that's not the type of person we should be remembering through art, then who is? So there's a few other questions like, hold on, are you just trying to use Kickstarter to scam a free car and these sorts of things? But Bix, this is this is the kind of shit we're talking about. Law and Order has a strange resonance. A lot of the people on the show, whether it's because of the actor, the character, the combination of both, the ubiquity of Law and Order just always being on cable, it helps create these things where even if it's like not your show, even if you didn't watch it religiously, you end up with dudes like this who are like, I was at a low point in my life. All I had was waking up at noon and watching 18 non-chronological episodes of Law & Order in a row, and Jerry Orbach saved me. How beautiful is this? It is really beautiful, and of course, though, that you said it the way you did just now makes me think about how it is weird, just how most people probably have not seen much of the show chronologically at <laughs> all. Oh, God, no. I mean, because at TNT, it's like, it's they don't even keep it close. You get like a season two episode with Paul Sorvino, and then the next episode is like, holy shit, Connie Rubarosa, what's up, girl? We, this we fast forward 18 years. Chronologically. Well, I mean, that's I'm, I'm missing out on that front. Every time I'm seeing Law & Order episodes, even if I see multiples in a row, like, there's never any continuity. Well, yeah, and Netflix uh, pulled, well, they only had one through eight for some reason, too. But then it's I hate that, by the way, when they pull... Stuff off, Ugh. like one or two seasons, just the shitness. So, this is a Kickstarter campaign that we're talking about here, and one of the most worthwhile I've ever seen. This is not, you know, my parents are incredibly affluent, but didn't agree with my decision to move to Los Angeles. Please fund my solo folk rock album or whatever. Or I had a fear of needles as a child, and oh like fucking yeah, that's 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 bigger political fish than we got to fry. I, I know. I don't think they actually had a Kickstarter, but it seemed perfect. Well, in fairness, um, Theranos is the kind of thing that is dumb enough to have started on a Kickstarter. Oh, for sure. Yes, and the Edison. So here's what you get if you donate to this thing potentially. And like I said, definitely check it out orbachcar dot com, or you can just Google the direct Kickstarter or Jerry Orbach car or whatever. Um, Here's what you get if you pledge, and if you go to the site, you can like check out you know, visual impressions a lot. Of stuff. Pledge $6 or more, get a bumper sticker. The bumper stickers are fantastic. You got the blue and red Law & Order font, honk if you miss Jerry Orbach. You got one in green with a gas pump, a marijuana leaf, and an outline of Jerry Orbach's head. Gas, grass, or Jerry Orbach, no one rides for free. Take off of a classic, you know, 1970s bumper sticker. But an older one of Jerry Orbach that has a uh, almost like a crayon rendition of one of his, I don't know, maybe 60s headshots. My child is an honor roll student at Jerry Orbach Elementary. And most suitable, 
one on a it's like a black to orange gradient with a big sunburst and it's got like the 1980s future tech tron-esque grid pattern over it and it's got jerry orbach as a transformer with a giant gun in his hand it just says my other car is jerry orbach that is clearly the best one looking yes by miles so six dollars more get yourself a bumper sticker and there's a million things here you got the Orabach onboard window placard. You got the laser cut wood keychain. Little, little Jerry Orbach in your pocket to keep your keys on all time, even if you can't drive him. We got Ooh, Jerry that Orbach. Thing, that thing's pretty good. We got Jerry Orbach fucking air fresheners for 20 bucks or more. You want to go all low? Pledge 95 bucks or more? You get all seven air fresheners. I mean,. A Jerry Orbach air freshener? I hope it smells like bro cream. Maybe like I don't know. Well, like what do you think? What do you think Briscoe would have worn? Do you, has he just been wearing brute since he was like eleven? Maybe something that has a uh, a boat on the bottle. <laughs> He's got you a little ship. Of of... <laughs> I like. I, I like that you instantly decide. I told you I liked Red Dragon more than Manhunter like once. And now every episode is going to be you suggesting that like somehow I'm Francis Dollaride. <laughs> it's also a really appropriate line for that moment, though. Bix, it's not my fault that I'm a freak hair lip and no one will ever love me. <laughs> you pay 125 bucks or more. You get the high octane pack, every bumper sticker, the Orbach on board placard, the keychain, all seven air freshers, plus a T-shirt. 200 or more you get a simulated ride along you get all the jams and then you get to phone in on skype and ride around in some kind of like skype facetime type type thing in the car like you were really there oh that sounds great 300 bucks or more everything else i've just mentioned plus the simulated ride plus as an elite donor you get your name airbrushed on the car so if we ever end up in a weird Jerry Orbach's grave gets hit by lightning and he comes back or something like that. If he runs into the Jerry Orbach lowrider, he's going to see your name on it and know you've been holding TNT down and doing the good word for his, uh, his name. 450 bucks or more. You do have to be within 120 miles of Los Angeles. But if you pledge 100, or excuse me, you pledge $450 or more, you get into the winner's circle. You get everything that I just mentioned. And sometime around February 2017, you get to ride through Los Angeles in the motherfucking Jerry Orbach car. Bix, a lot of people decry the vain state of art in general and the viability of sort of pop art. To me, this is what pop art is supposed to be about. It's not even just the... You missed the one. In- oh, did I? What did I, I leave out? Scroll down a little more. Oh, $500 will get you a satin jacket with the Jerry Orbach um, etching on the back. Black collar, black cuffs, Jerry Orbach on the back. If you're the kind of person that saw Drive, we're like, oh, white and satin jacket with a scorpion on the back. That looks cool. Fuck that. How much cooler would Ryan Gosling have looked and Drive if he had black on black satin with Jerry Orbach on the back? That's the stunt driver you want to get in the criminal game. Also, he throws the scent off the trail because he's rocking a cop on the back. No one would ever know he's a criminal. 
You actually left one out too. Pledge a thousand dollars or more of the ultimate Orbach yeah, yeah, fan. Yeah, yeah. Everything just mentioned, plus the satin driving jacket, plus small piece of original Orbach artwork made by the homie Brandon Bird. So tons of ways to contribute to this Kickstarter. And, you know, if you're someone who's who's hearing this and like not, you know, familiar with me as a, a person, a host, an internet personality, a professional idiot, whatever I qualify as, I'm one of the last people on earth that would ever espouse the value of some random person's Kickstarter, let alone dedicate time to it on the show. But I can't say I've ever seen a better Kickstarter than this Bix. And not even just because it's so timely and came to us courtesy of uh, Brandy Jeffries, a dope listener. You only said that because you're not a Veronica Mars fan, though. You might change that yet. uh, What the hell? Kickstarter. (laughs) The greatest uh, cart, cart kicker. Kick, kick, kick. kick Carter. Today, Junior. Kick Kick Carter for ER fans. You you thinking maybe pick up an air fresher, a little keychain? I kind of want the freshers. Is appealing. At bare minimum, I think I'll get the... Uh, I say bare minimum a lot, Jesus. I'll get the, uh, the, the Transformers slash Tron inspired bumper sticker. Yeah, I'm kind of... I'm kind of... I'm feeling a little, little keychain air freshener type action. I'm... I'm excited to get up in the Jerry Orbach Memorial Art Car Mix. Like I said, hat tip to listener Brady Jeffries and hat tip to artist Brandon Bird for being the kind of beautiful person that finds personal and professional inspiration in Law and & Order and TNT's marathons of it, and specifically Jerry Orbach. And even if Jerry Orbach ain't immortal, the immortal Lenny Briscoe. Bix... Most people want to die with dignity, but if you were going to go out, safe to say you'd rather have an old woman going through Central Park, trip over your foot, break her hip, and then somewhere between 10 minutes and four hours later, Jerry Auerbach shows up in his overcoat, takes his leather gloves off, stands up, puts them back on. And then says some really smarmy shit to shame you in front of everyone who's just witnessed your death and staring at your corpse. Isn't that the way that you want to go out? I I I, I suppose so. And that that well, how am I murdered in this scenario though? Well, I'll give you I'll give you your choice, but I feel like if you're a fan of Law and Order. You've thought about how you go out in a cold open before, and more than that, you probably found it appealing, and I think there's almost something ironically life-affirming and beautiful about the idea of me being dead, and my spirit starts to raise up out of my body, and just as I evaporate and become fully just ethereal nothingness as my soul fades away and into the, the great beyond, I see Jerry Orbach. And he stands up, and he puts his gloves back on, and he just shames me in some way. <laughs> Would you like an example, perhaps? Do you, is there, do you have, like, an all-time favorite cold open line? I have one that I was able to pull out quickly. Well, this isn't actually from a cold open, though, but it's a good one. As long as, as, long as it's a Lenny Briscoe quip, it's good by me. I got news for you, Cosette. There's no such thing as hooker-client confidentiality. 
believe that's a oh what episode is that oh i can like see it in my head now you just got me excited anyway like i said orbotcar.com get whatever level of donation suits you and uh have a good dream about dying in a law and order cold open the way that we all want to go uh, speaking for of me well well you know, no, i was gonna say that for me that would be i, I would say poisoned in my sleep by a hooker who steals my wallet and but and dumps me in Central Park but as she's stealing my wallet she sees my Jerry Orbach keychain really <laughs> regretful because she looks at me and she looks at the keychain and she thinks that I have a keychain of my grandfather <laughs> why would I have a keychain stealing an old a carving of an old Jewish man <laughs> Oh, man. I love the idea that somehow a Jerry Orbach keychain could save your life in a moment of mercy. No, I'm like already the, dead. She just... Oh, I mean, she, just, she feels regret. I was going to say, like, is it like the scene in The scene in the Wire where Omar shoots Brother Muzon, but then realizes that Brother Muzon's dying, that he's repeatedly doing uh, um, Muslim, like, like Islamic prayers and repeatedly saying Alu Akbar, and he suddenly realizes that a man of this religious material wouldn't have killed his homosexual lover in this way, and he instantly knows he can't finish him off because he's made a mistake and been bamboozled. Just that moment that at the end, she would feel that enormous regret and maybe think twice. Just a little, 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 little Jerry Orbach head floating in your in your uh, pocket. I love it. And you said that every episode wouldn't be this long. This is your fault, by the way. I disagree entirely. Takes two to tango. If I just liked Law and Order, we wouldn't have done this because you'd have hated it. But you like it too, and that's why we're here. Next week, uh, first thing we know we have on the docket, Duran Duran. Something else we both love. Yes. More beautiful men with beautiful hair, in fact. Very, very beautiful men. And also, I think, not a natural dovetailing with Law and Order, but something to be said for mainstream pop culture and art that probably isn't as critically well-received as it should be in some ways. As we kind of teased out today, there are aspects to Law & Order that have a level of subtlety, nuance, and uh, skill, precision, and greater execution than a show like that ever gets credit for. And if there's a band that gets unfairly shit on more than Duran Duran, at least one that I love, I'm not sure what it is. So... Little Simon LeBon and Co. coming to you next week. And if that's the kind of thing that gets you excited, and uh, you're thinking, man, these boys, they got me wanting to give all my money away right now. I'm going to go get myself some Jerry Orbach air fresheners. Make, sh- make sure that the hooker who attempts to kill me sees the old Jewish man in my pocket and thinks twice. <laughs> After you get to the Kickstarter, hook it up at Patreon. Bix, tell the people how they can give us their money. You're going with Patreon? Is it is it Patreon? Patreon? I always go with Patreon. Okay, that's pa- fair. Patreon. Because they are patrons. Yes, patreon.com slash T-W-O scoops. That's patreon.com slash two scoops. Um, dollar for the thanks. Dollar a month, excuse me, for the thanks and the exclusive Slack chat, Slack chat access. Five dollars a month to get exclusive, I guess, we'll, we'll say at least weekly extra shows. And I think that's about it. Follow me on Twitter at David Bix. Follow Jordan on Twitter at Jordan Breen. Follow the show on Twitter at TWO Scoops Pod. 
Of course, you can get the show on iTunes and just about everything else where you can get a podcast. TwoScoopsPod.com for the website itself. And uh, I guess I'll throw in again, tinyurl.com slash TwoScoopsAmazon for our Amazon referral link. But otherwise, I think that is it. We don't know everything about ourselves all the time. We don't always know what people we are deep inside. Sometimes it's hard to figure out whether you're a black lawyer or a lawyer that's black. But one thing we can all agree on, the night version of Girls on Film is one of the illest 12 inches ever. Bix, been a pleasure as always. Looking forward to episode three, but may we have a little dance session of some Simon LeBon right now and a groovy intro bass line? Yep. And until we talk about 12 inches again. You have the biggest dick I've ever seen on here. Peace. <laughs> <laughs>